It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 382. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters outside Atlanta. Today's show is recorded on the 5th of July, 2019. In today's episode, a Brussels air flight from Belgium to Washington turns around reportedly because the plane didn't have the proper paperwork to land in the U.S. And the New Zealand court hears evidence that a pilot whose small plane crashed two years ago had ignored passenger warnings about ice on the wings. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Jeff Lee, Master Photographer, Part 2. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 382 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Thanks. That was Radio Roger Stern, and he is a real live professional radio broadcaster, unlike the rest of us here. And it's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your feedback and joining me today from her lakeside studio in south carolina a doctor a skydiver a marathon runner strength training junkie ipa connoisseur and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot her name is dr steph that's me glad wow i can't talk either (laughs) you just cut that out and we'll just start over again yeah sure that's me it's good to see you jeff (laughs) He's definitely not going to cut out the stuff that I just messed up. No. So if you're watching the video, <laughs> you'll see it. And if you're listening to the audio, you'll also get that. But hopefully a great show tonight, um, as usual. Looking forward <laughs> <Right>. to it. <laughs> and joining us from his studio across the pond in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, uh, Steph. Uh, oh, great to be back on again. Isn't it nice? The sun's just setting here. What a lovely evening. Great to be with you and looking forward to a good chat. Excellent. Well, great to have you with us. Captain Dana could not make it for today's episode. We hope you're having a great time wherever you are, Dana. And uh, hello, everyone. And uh, doesn't seem that long. Well, it was about a week ago, I guess. It just uh, time flies when you're having fun. I don't recall. Yeah. Well, I don't either. I don't know. <laughs> so um, what have you all been up to uh, since the last episode, like over the weekend and during the week? We had a major uh, holiday here in the United States of America celebrating breaking up with our good friends over there in the United Kingdom called Independence Day. Yeah. Tra- Traitor's Day. <laughs> Traitor's mm-hmm. Day. It was just, you know, a breakup. That's all. It was Yeah, just a little break, breakup. A little falling know? out. Is hard to do. We may actually out. get together again someday. We might. It probably would be, I don't know, might be in someone's interest. Might be awkward, too. Might be awkward. Yeah. Um, Maybe difficult. it's just best if we, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. 
don't hook up again. Hmm. Okay. Um, Steph? Yes. Have, you d- mentioned the um, 4th of July holiday, the Independence mm-hmm. Day holiday here, and uh, you like to run. And I do. There is something here in Atlanta. I didn't know if you knew about it or not. It's called the Peachtree Road Race. I might have heard of it. Yeah. Like you, the largest 10K in the world. Yeah. And I think you participated, didn't you? I did. And I yes. think you did a pretty, you had a, I did. a pretty good race. Yeah. It was a good race for me. It was very good. Um, so this is the second time I've done this race. I did it two years ago. Did not do it last year. But this year was the 50th edition, 50th anniversary of the race. And I was convinced by a good friend of mine who runs it every year that I really needed to run this year because it was going to be going to have special t-shirts and blah, blah, blah. And so flew down to Atlanta on Wednesday night. Actually ended up getting in late. My flight was delayed. The The aircraft was delayed out of Columbus, Ohio. Um, I feel like there are certain people I could blame for that, but I won't. Mm. I won't. Uh, that, apparently it was due to weather. We'll put it in quotes, weather in Columbus. Mm-hmm. So we left late, I don't know, maybe an hour or so, then arrived in Atlanta and surprise, surprise, our gate was occupied. Uh, so we had to wait another 15 minutes or so for the gate to be unoccupied. So now, just to be clear, there. this was not Acme Airlines, right? This was not Acme okay. Airlines. Good. Yeah. Makes a change. Uh, yeah. Does it? Whose <laughs> <laughs> side are you on? <laughs> you know what? If Acme would like to build a hub here in Charlotte, I know, I know. all for it. I, I don't hold that against you. Other anyway. things, maybe, but not that. Not that. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, okay. Fair enough. Glad we have that settled. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, finally got to uh, my hotel. It was pretty late, probably about nine o'clock or so, nine fifteen. Had to head out to uh, the Whole Foods around the corner to get some dinner and uh, some provisions for, you know, in terms of Gatorade, like drinks and water and whatnot, fruit for the morning, oatmeal for the morning. Excuse me. And then we had a, um, pretty early starts um the they have this race divided up into like a billion different corrals to start because it's so many people so i was in the technically the third uh wave which actually starts second but don't worry about that they treated you Um, like livestock yeah basically they corral you into Mm. corrals that's not good yeah so my race was at 7.05. So we got on the train on marta at about 6 a.m and the first train was so packed we couldn't get onto it full of runners. So mm. we waited for the next train to come, which was almost wide open. So we were glad we did not try to squeeze in with the masses on the first train. And then the train decided it was going to a different stop than originally advertised. It switched lines completely, which was perfect for us. Yeah. It was a red line train that switched to, was it yellow or gold or something? Gold. Yeah. Gold. Yeah. Just, I don't know why. Okay. But that was good. That was better for us because we didn't really want to go where the red line train was going. We just wanted to be on a train going in the general direction of the start that wasn't completely packed mm-hmm. and so got to the start line in uh, plenty of time had time to use the facilities the porta potties and uh see the uh they sang the national anthem and had a flyover with some gray noisy things i don't know what they were and a couple planes. of them. airplanes yeah. yeah i just don't know what particular <laughs> type of military aircraft they were gray okay. noisy things <laughs> al will understand okay. and <laughs> anyway um, oh, the Thunderbirds. Were they the Thunderbirds? It was the Thunderbirds, actually. Yes. Was it really? Yes, definitely the Thunderbirds. Oh, okay. It was not. Um, anyway. <laughs> no. And then, uh, yeah, started the race. It's a 10K race, 6.2 miles uh, down Peachtree Road Street, crossing several other roads named Peachtree something Peach or other. Peachtree Road, Peachtree Boulevard, Peachtree Boulevard. Avenue. Yeah. 
ends up in a park downtown, which the name of the park I've forgotten. Piedmont. Piedmont Park. Thank you. Yep. And uh, it was a good race for me. It was a, a one minute personal best time in the 10K distance and finished. Actually, just pulled up. They keep adjusting the results, I guess, pulling people out who were had uh, dubious Oh, results. maybe they cheated a little bit. Well, yeah. So now I'm, well, as of right now, I was the 400th female finisher. Wow. Out of 30, out of 30,000, like 699 or something. That's brilliant. Isn't that awesome? So, yeah, it was, it was a good race. It was a good day. What were you carrying? An AK-47? Mowing people down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> out of my way. Competition. You shoot all the rest. <laughs> out of my way. Uh, Anyone in front of you? Yeah. Boom. Move, move, move. <laughs> but I ran with my my usual running, my partner in running crime. Um, her name is Karen. And uh, she had a good race as well. She hit her goal time and was like the 1,080th female finisher. So that was, that was pretty good as well. And then we actually went back out. Um, Dispatcher Mike ran. It was his first 10K ever. So shout out to Dispatcher Mike and good job. Well done. He finished yeah. the race. And um, we were able, his, his start time was 8.20. So we were able to go back and actually meet him along the course and jog for a block or two with him. So it was good. Make him feel really bad for. No, he was doing great. No. <laughs> there was no reason to, to make it. Like, hey, he did a lot better than awesome. I did. Yeah. I don't think you were. No, did you even get not. out of bed that early? Mm. No. Maybe. I was probably sleeping when you guys were running. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, wait. Um, oh, I was working. I was up. I was doing something. Being productive. Flying airplanes. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Nick probably wasn't awake. Well, he probably was, but only because no, of the time. Tell. Huh? <laughs> I would have gone to sleep purposely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was a good race. It was a good time. Um, nice to be down in Atlanta for a day. Flew back really early this morning. Mm. My flight was at a 5.15 departure. That was fun. So you made it. I made it. Mm. Uh, they were boarding group six when I arrived at the gate. I was supposed to board with group one. That was fine. <laughs> That's not unusual. Right, for right on time. Yeah. Right on time. <laughs> and uh, then I just proceeded to pass out. And uh, before I knew it, we were back in Charlotte. And you went to work even. Today. I went to work. Wow. Yep. That's work ethic cool. right there, folks. That's right. It's right dedication there. to the job. Very impressed. And I did some flying. I did a little bit of flying last weekend Ooh. and on Tuesday night. So I've been out and trying to do that more Not often. Flying. No, but the sun stays up so late. It was like flew from like seven thirty to eight thirty, and it really wasn't dark. Oh, yeah. Okay, excellent. It's good times. Yeah, Nick. What have you been um, up to? Not not a great deal. Um, a little a little tragedy in the family. Oh, no. um, we live on a piece, or very close to a, a large piece of countryside, which is actually an army training ground, but uh, we get access to it. Uh, and it's heathland, so, you know, heather and ferns and pine trees and the like. Uh, and I was walking the dogs up there the other day, and one of them got bitten by the one and only poisonous uh, snake in the United Kingdom, uh, which is uh, a species of viper, which we call the adder. And uh, poor Rusty has been suffering. Uh, it, luckily, the snakes in the UK are not big. They don't carry a huge uh, pack of punch with their venom. Um, so, uh, you know, as long as you get them treated very quickly and they don't bite the, the animal in a, a very vulnerable position, like uh, in the neck or, uh, you know, that sort of thing, where the swelling is likely to cause a big problem, uh, you're going to be fine. And they, they did have her in for quite a while in the vets, uh, 
getting her stabilized, getting her heart rate back to normal, blood pressure, etc. But I'm very glad to say that she's come out of that well. And although she's uh, very sore and very subdued and uh, pretty swollen, in the ear where she was bitten and uh, it went down to her throat and down her uh, chest. Um, she is uh, going to be fine. So uh, we, we're very happy with that. That's but good. that's the, uh, the fourth bite that our dogs have had over the, the 25 years we've lived here. So uh, we, we are a little cautious and Jilly, poor love, is terrified of snakes. So uh, she does not enjoy it when she finds one sitting, sunning itself on the path. <laughs> mm. The dogs, of course, have a different attitude. They, they love it. They usually just, yeah, well, they, they either go up and sniff them or they just tread on one uh, as they run in through the undergrowth. So uh, it's an occupational hazard for them. Apart from that, um, what I've been doing, I've been bowling a lot. Uh, I have been catching up with all sorts of uh, niff-naff and trivia. Uh, I've been trying to get my company to produce me a correctly worded ID. When I retired, they gave me a retiree ID, which uh, uh, said... Um, something like uh, Nicholas, name here, and uh, <laughs> Mr. So they definitely know who you are. That's Mr. Yeah, name like here, Nicholas. <laughs> so and so. Nicholas exactly. Well, that's not going to take me very far. Pilot for us, we don't know. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, so I, I politely uh, mentioned it, and my manager said, "Oh, get onto that." And uh, I've now got one that said uh, uh, Nicholas Anderson, and under my job title. <laughs> Uh, it now, instead of saying captain is what it used to, it now says retiree, retiree. So, uh, uh, you know, the old one said captain and then status retiree, which was what I wanted. And so I'm just wondering whether I could press for round three. And try and get, yeah, round three. <laughs> Third time's a term. Exactly. Sure. So I'm hoping that might I thought you were going to say job title and it says job title. <laughs> <laughs> job no, title on the here. It says card number and it says card number. <laughs> But I think someone's that, been a little asleep on the job with the printing. <laughs> yeah, so. Maybe but, you can go uh, and just supervise them as they to, like type in the stuff and then print it. That would be real nice, but it's a long drive. Um, the other thing was they sent me my special pass so I can get into the uh, upper class lounge every time I go to the airport, which is really nice. It's a perk of having been with the company for 25 years. But uh, I was wondering where it got to. And then I got the thing from our uh, mail carrier service here, the Royal Mail, to say that there's a, a letter and I would need to go in and pay money before I could get hold of it because there was no stamp on it. So when I got it, it <laughs> They put it in the mail with no stamp on it? <laughs> yeah. What is yeah. this operation that you used to work for? No, I don't I'm a little know. concerned. <laughs> I, I, a little I think they must have the uh, the you know the people who come along from school to you know try out different Interns. jobs. Interns, yeah. yeah. Those you, I think we uh, we call it oh, we call it something else. Uh, um, Millennials. Yeah, anyway. Job creation scheme or something. Yeah, it must have a few of them kicking around get these jobs. Anyway, by the by, it was most amusing. But uh, no, no, the bowling uh, continues the pace. But really, honestly, I'm now orientated towards setting up for uh, coming out to the states. So I've got my tickets and uh, uh, everything's organised. I've got a few dollars and uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, I've actually got a whole bunch of um, dirhams, uh, which I'm not quite sure uh, what. Uh, yeah, I've got dirhams here. Yeah. <laughs> what what, what is country that? do those belong to? Yeah, United Arab Emirates. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. You're not going to be able to use work, them here. <laughs> no. We don't accept that. There's a hundred and something not, dollars worth. Not legal. So. Well, you'll have to exchange it for dollars. It is not legal okay. tender in this country. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I dollars. thought the Arabs had taken you over. Sorry. Not yet. 
Oh, okay. They've taken us over. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. So I hope you bring lots and lots of dollars. Uh, yeah, I it. will. Yeah, I certainly will. Um, to exchange. Wisconsin's an expensive place. Beer chips. Well, no, it's going to be really expensive even before we get anywhere near Wisconsin. Oh, All right. Wisconsin. Wisconsin's not expensive. No. Why is that museum we're going to an expensive entry fee or something? Oh, you're still you're going to be here in uh, Atlanta for a couple of days first. All right. Okay. Yeah, so, I'm just going to hide. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. So well, nothing to report, sir. Really. All right. Well, I have lots of stuff to report. Great. Um, dealing with uh, the upcoming Osh Blast 2019 at Osh EAA Air Venture. Let me try that again. EAA Air Venture, not EAR Air. We're going to that that damn oh, there that air show. We're going to have lots of airplanes and stuff. Oh, beer. beer. Um, anyway, Beatable got uh, the T-shirts, uh, the uh, bulk order. I have to say, I'm not really super impressed with the quality. Um, but I'm a. I used to be a screen printer myself. And uh, I'm kind of particular about the way things are printed, but hey, they're printed. And uh, here's here's the back. Let's see if I can. You see it? Yay! Wonderful design. Okay. Wanted it to be a little Mr. bit bigger, Jim. but oh well. So, um, and uh, so we got that done. And if you hadn't had a chance, if you're just now catching up to the uh, podcasts, uh, and know that we want your order in by a certain time, well, it's too late. Uh, but actually not really too late. You can go to the website when it, when it gets back, uh, working again. <laughs> um, website is down just in yeah. case you haven't heard the, the website what? is down. I'm sorry. Do I have to leave now? <laughs> the website's down. Yeah. Okay. I, I did send, um, Arash a, uh, quick uh, message. So I don't know, maybe he was able to, uh, no, he hasn't responded yet. Anyway, um, we will, um, you can go to apg. or no airlinepilotguy.com slash store, and uh, then you can click on the uh, thing there. And I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a direct link to the URL to go to the Teespring store, just in case the website's down. And you can click on that, go to the Teespring site, and you can order your shirt. And we have a couple different versions of the shirt. Not versions. They're all the same front and back print. But you can get a women's version. You can get like a premium T-shirt. You can get a... Um, uh, more of a, what do they call that? Like the soft, uh, touch shirt or something like that. Um, a little bit different cut. I don't know. Sorry, I'm, just, a bit I'm just laughing because I've just received a text message that the website is down. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good to okay. know. Um, some wise guy, huh? Yeah. Um, I won't mention who it is, but you know who you are. Oh, somebody's in the chat room or was earlier. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll have the link to Teespring. Oh, you can get tank tops and, uh, and what else is there? There's something different. Something else is different. Anyway, more to choose from. And they'll print it for you and they'll ship it to you. And hopefully if you order right away, it'll be shipped to you before it comes time for us to wear order our now. shirts. Order, order now. now. Order now. Order now. Okay. Thank you. Um, and uh, let's see what else. We, uh, we're going to have baseball caps. I think I mentioned that on the last episode. Um, um, they haven't been finished yet. Um, in fact, I don't even think they've been start. They've started on the embroidery yet, but uh, they uh, assure me that they'll be finished by Friday of next week. So um, we're going to sell those for twenty bucks um, a piece, and uh, they should be very nice. And uh, we'll have royal blue and charcoal to choose from. So I'll just we'll have those with us 
at Oshkosh, and then you can take a look and see what we have left over. Um, what Nick else? Left. Hmm? Bye, Nick. Nick. Oh, bye. I guess he was offended by something I said. Yes, Jennifer. Operators are standing by. Um, and For only three easy installments of forty nine ninety nine. You do- oh wait, that's not the correct price. I'm sorry. No. We could charge that if you want, but that's a little bit more than what we're paying. To no, no one, would, no one would buy them. Um, oh, uh, we have a flat where we have, we're having a flag made so that we can plant it, probably attach it to the RV or somewhere nearby when we're in camp. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to see the, the waving APG or Acme Airlines flag. And that'll help you locate us because that's where we'll be headquartered in uh, Camp Scholler. By the way, a lot of you have asked about um, the official APG meetups and stuff. Well, we don't really have any official APG meetups because pretty much everybody has taken up all the meetup space and that kind of thing. So we're just going to be there, head to the RV. That's the official APG meetup every day that we're there. <laughs> so the, yeah. the only thing that's official is that we will be there. Yes, that that is official. We will be there yes. and uh, there to uh, share a beer or other adult beverage or non-adult beverage with you. And uh, I'm sure you'll see us walking about uh, every day of the show again. You will. And, you know, we were talking about uh, where we were parking up and uh, how the street names sounded, you know, like non, not very aviation related. Yeah. Well, Jordan's in the chat room and says that uh, Ray Stitz, uh, one of the uh, streets nearby, uh, founded the first EAA chapter. Oh, okay. In my hometown of Riverside, CA. Uh, California. So oh. uh, that's Stitz Avenue. Okay. He didn't explain what cottonwood elm Cotton. and cottonwood and elm. Those sound like right. trees to me. Trees. Yeah. 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 So but, uh, yeah, Lindbergh. We mentioned yeah that I think there's some Lindbergh in history has something to do with aviation. Not sure exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, but not very important. I wasn't there that day in history. Uh, uh, mm. Anyway, so good. Good to know, Stitz. I figured there must be some kind of. Um, something to do with that, uh, with that name. Okay. Uh, let's see what else I'm looking at the show notes. Oh, we still have the, I'll put the links in that Hillel, uh, created for a questionnaire and, uh, a spreadsheet doc so that we can all know who is coming, where they're going to be staying, etc., etc. And, uh, we'll have those in the show notes for this show as well as the last show. And, Tentatively, I think that Nick and I will be arriving most likely on Thursday, the, let's see, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th of July, and we'll be there for the entire week of Oshkosh. Maybe leaving on Saturday, the not the, quite the last day, but I don't know, maybe um, maybe the Sunday. We're not sure yet. Have to work that out with the man we're renting the RV from, I guess. And Arash is... Um, texting me and he said something i can't repeat and then he said that the site should be up in about two seconds no two minutes so there we go um what else anything else about oshkosh that's new since the last show i don't think so but uh, we're getting excited and next weekend um nick and i will be together here in atlanta so looking forward to that next weekend not this mm-hmm. one that's coming up tomorrow and Sunday, no, no, but the one the after one. Yeah. One thereafter. Okay. 
Um, that is it. I was on a trip this past week. Nothing really interesting about it. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, got home on the 4th of July and that's about it. All I can think of. All right. Anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? Traitors. I don't think so. Huh? Right. Hmm? Traitors. I said traitors. That's oh, us. Okay. We'll wear that. Proudly. Proudly. Oops. That's not the right thing to put. There you go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. It is that segment of the show where we talk about these wonderful people. They're part of our coffee fund club or coffee bar club, coffee fund cadre, whatever you want to call them. We call them amazing because they help us out financially. And there are a couple different ways you can do that. One is the classic method. And since the last episode, Andrew Pelk. Oh, Andrew Pelk. That was my first officer that I was flying with when we recorded the last show. Excellent. Hey, true. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, Alistair Kerr, Johns Philip Seidel, or Seidel, Carrie Kenner, and Randolph Ackerman all used the classic method. Another way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last episode, we have three, count them, three new producers. Uh, first one, Alex Prooks, uh, Carrie Kenner, and Ant Pruitt. I think he's in the Charlotte area, isn't he? Stuff. Okay. Um, he has a, a, a podcast that he does with his wife called Everyday People, Everyday Stuff. Yes. I believe that's correct. And yes, we're pretty close anyway. Anyway, if you want to uh, become producers or patrons or just uh, coffee fund club members, please head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Stand by for news. Whoopsies. Looks like um, a little oversight by um, the administration of a Brussels Airlines flight. Brussels Airlines flight 515 to Washington turned back to Brussels after nine hours in the air. Apparently, they had no clearance to land in the U.S. And we're not talking about the tower controllers giving them clearance to land. We're talking about a diplomatic clearance. All that all that red tape paperwork has to be taken care of. And apparently somebody dropped the ball in Brussels. And so after making the Atlantic crossing, a very long nine-hour flight, um, they had to turn back around and land back in Brussels. Is that right? Or did they have to 
No, I think the whole else. flight. The whole flight was nine, nine hours. It's like oh, four okay. and a half. Oh, okay. So they, I guess they figured it out about halfway over then. Yeah. Ah, okay. that's better. Then they go, uh, oops. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, this was a test run. We'll try the proper flight tomorrow. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thank you for participating in that. We, the, <laughs> we have the good peanuts. news is you're getting a free flight. The bad news is meal. it's tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to go back to Brussels. I guess yeah. they said that uh, the EU 261 rule applies. Uh, compensation and assistance to passengers in the event of denied boarding and of cancellation or long delay of flights. I don't know. Did it, did any of those apply? I'm not sure. Well, I don't know. I don't think they, the flight wasn't canceled. No, uh, there wasn't a long delay because they got airborne on time. They yeah. just didn't get to their destination. They weren't denied boarding. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hmm. The lawyers are out there going, hmm, maybe we don't have to pay him a thing. Anyway, in average, a passenger would get around 600 euros in cash compensation. And as Steph mentioned, uh, they'll get, uh, I don't know if you really can call it a free flight because it was really the flight they were supposed to get that they paid for. You get an extra flight. Well, they got two flights for the price of one. For the price of one, yeah. It's like buy one, get one free. I'm sure that made them happy. Mm. Yeah, that's true. But my, my outfit did it once uh, when we started a new route into Hong Kong and, uh, we got as far as Moscow before uh, somebody uh, in the air traffic world in Russia said, oh, we don't actually have uh, your clearance here, so we're going to send up some MiGs to intercept your 340 and make you land at Moscow. And then we're going to charge you so much money to in landing fees and refuel that uh, you're going to have to have a whip round amongst your passengers because we won't take any of your credit cards. Uh, and uh, luckily, there were some very wealthy passengers on board who forked out enough cash to be able to get the aircraft refueled and sent back to London. Uh, and of course, it was exactly uh, as you mentioned on this story—a diplomatic uh, um, mistake. Uh, the yeah, the it had been agreed at government level, and we were all set to go. Uh, and when we went, uh, no one had bothered to tell our traffic control. Oops. Is that like a, a flight basis or a actual N number or tail number basis? I mean, do they have to actually? Well, it was our very first flight yeah. uh, on that call sign through that airspace. Okay. So each aircraft uh, call sign and route needs to be pre-agreed. Yeah. So I, I'm... I do remember uh, when I was in the military, uh, we you know I flew transport, um, cargo transports, and we flew all over the world, and that was a very important thing to make sure that we had all of our diplomatic clearances for our prescribed route. And then if for some reason uh, we didn't have diplomatic – I mean, one time I remember going from Darwin, Australia to uh, somewhere in the Philippines. And they said, well, we don't have diplomatic clearance to fly over the top of one of these, like out in the middle of nowhere, um, Indonesian islands, um, like Borneo or – something like that. I don't know which one it was. And so we're going up and then we go like 90 degrees this way for a bit. And then we turn around this way and go this way. And I'm thinking, really, do they have anything that they could actually shoot us down with down there? I mean, can't we just, would they, do they even know we're here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but they yeah, might. But yeah. If, if they found out, they yeah. might get upset. That's about it. Yeah. So really, we, we play by the rules because we didn't have the dip, yeah. dip clearance. We called it. So yeah, we, we were the same. We used to go down to Cyprus and there's some troubled airspace around there and a lot of conflict between Turkey and Greece. Uh, and to save any hassles, we used to fly down the FIR boundary so that we were neither in one country nor the other. 
if you stay on the boundary, oh, the which no is an interesting situation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when it's a, actually a couple of tankers and eight phantoms, there aren't many people that are going to come up and mess with you anyway. No, probably not. <laughs> if they know it's good for them. Exactly. All right. Very good. Uh, or not good for Brussels, but oh well. Yeah. You know, it, it, as we mentioned, it happens. It, it's not the first time that this has happened and won't be the it last. It will probably happen again. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, item B. Pilot dismissed passengers' concerns about ice on wings before plane crash. And this is from stuff.co.nz. Did I do that right? New Zealand, yes. Uh, the Cessna crash. Oh, this is the... Uh, picture caption the pilot who crashed at queenstown airport had just dismissed concerns from his passengers about ice on the wings before taking off a court has heard yannick shatashvili 34 dusted some frost off the cessna and told passengers the rest would come off once the aircraft had taken off judge john brant's Giesen said while sentencing him in the queenstown district court on monday uh, this gentleman uh, yannick previously admitted operating the aircraft in a manner that caused unnecessary danger to three passengers on August 15, 2017. The three passengers on board suffered minor injuries in the crash. The engine in the privately owned Cessna failed shortly after takeoff, causing it to crash on grass next to the main runway. One passenger was partially ejected from the plane. One suffered bruising. The second had whiplash and the third had neck and ankle sprains. Uh, the pilot incident pilot had earlier sought a discharge without conviction to protect his future aviation career but that was rejected by the judge civil aviation authority counsel matthew jenkins said the passenger's concern about the ice was an aggregating factor as was the seriousness of the crash um, so you know i read through this and it seems to me that the engine failure didn't really directly have anything to do with the ice on the wings uh, but no. that was just a contributor contributory uh, factor. I mean, it seems that the crash was caused by the engine failing. Yeah. Uh, but in, in the aftermath, they discovered there was ice on the wings. So they went, well, you're a bad boy. So, yeah. uh, we, you know, so but the, it didn't crash because it was ice on the wings. Right. It could have done because it's pretty nasty if you try and fly with ice on the wings. Yeah. It's not again. We're not, in, uh, we're not endorsing no, no. flying with no, ice on the wings. No, we're not. Please don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it could easily have done so. But uh, having said that, he might have got away with it had the engine not failed. Yeah, that is true. All right. Um, anything else to say about that? Not. I'm just not wondering what he was flying before he was flying Cessnas, because despite 1,500 hours, he was relatively inexperienced in flying Cessnas. Well, that's that's a little strange. Yeah. Yeah. Most people have, especially if they're private pilots, have a decent number of Cessna hours, even if that's not your. You'd think, or maybe it was mostly Piper time, or maybe, something. Well, maybe, or whatever so. uh, the common type is over there. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, item C. Uh, United A319 at New York and Newark on June 29th, 2019, had hydraulic issues, and Chris Cheatwood sent us in this uh, link from the Aviation Herald. A United Airbus A319-100, registration 837, Uniform Alpha, performing flight. Oh, I need to make this bigger so I can see the entire text. I don't know why it does this, but sometimes when we clip things from the Aviation Herald, it does this. Hmm. Anyway, 
um, had 128 passengers and five crew, was climbing out of LaGuardia's runway 31 when the crew declared an emergency reporting hydraulic issues. Their new destination was Newark and stopped the climb at 8,000 feet. And by the way, for those not familiar, Newark is very, I mean, it's one of the, considered one of the New York airports. So very close by. Uh, the aircraft headed for an approach to Newark's runway 22 left. On approach to Newark, the crew requested delay vectors while troubleshooting the issue. The crew advised they expected to be able to vacate the runway. The aircraft landed on Newark's runway 22 left about 17 minutes after departure. As soon as the aircraft touched down, the fire commander declared runway 22 left closed. The next arrivals needed to go around. The crew immediately afterwards announced they needed to evacuate. Advised all aircraft on approach and ground control or ground, the airport was currently closed due to the emergency ongoing. The aircraft came to a stop with both left main tires deflated. Not only that, if you look at the pictures, it was more than just the two left main tires deflated. Basically, the entire half of the wheels on the left side were completely ground down. It looks like a, ha- a semicircle or a half. A half. Uh, it looks great. It looks kind of like they've sunk into the tarmac, but they haven't. They've just been ground down to the axles. <laughs> That's amazing. What happened here, Nick? I mean, did they? Did they have a lot? I don't break? know. I don't know a lot about the three uh, twenties uh, hydraulic systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was one of my airplanes, it, you'd have to have been a pretty seriously degraded hydraulic state to end up with no anti skid, which is what I, I assume happened mm-hmm. here, um, because. Eventually, on the 330s and the 340s, uh, if you lose enough hydraulics, you're left with a bottle of pneumatics, which will pressurize the brakes sufficient for something like nine applications or six applications Mm -hmm. uh, on the landing roll. And because there's no anti-skid, you've got to do that uh, relatively gently. And you've actually got to look at a pair of gauges, because if you put over 1,000 PSI in there, chances are you will uh, lock the brakes up and... uh, they, the tires will burst because basically, once not only skid, the tires will just stop rotating. They'll heat up, wear through, burst, and then you'll be down on the uh, hubs as this bloke was. So whether it was just a, a hydraulic failure that also causes any skid to failure, or he was in that really dire situation of only having the uh, the pneumatic bottles to uh, power his brakes, I don't know, but I would suspect an anti-skid problem. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think it's a lot less complicated on the narrow bodies. I know that the airplane that I fly, um, it, it doesn't take a lot of hydraulic issues to deactivate the anti-skid system. And you have to be very careful with brake applications when you don't have the anti-skid system working. Because yeah, yeah the, the wheel locks up and then, boom, tires fail and then yeah, you're grinding. I mean, it's, it's relatively common for uh, aircraft to uh, to burst their tires. Uh, yeah. It happens reasonably frequently, uh, but if the guy's standing on the brakes because he's only just got airborne, he's a bit heavy, and he wants to make sure he stops, then it's much easier to do. Uh, you know, I don't know the complete details of this situation. If there was something else going on that they felt it was urgent that they get it on the ground right away. If not, it, they probably would have been better off just spending more time in the air burning the fuel because they don't have fuel dumping capability on this airplane and just burning the fuel and getting it down to a much lighter weight and then maybe they wouldn't have had this issue with the with the left side locking up like as it is again we're making a lot of 
Yeah, um, I, I, I think you're right. If it, if it had been a simple single system that had failed, they would have had with two other systems to run, they probably would have um, been able to cope with that and wouldn't have been too worried. But they, uh, I listened to the ATC tape, mm-hmm. and it did sound like they w- were fairly concerned to get it on the ground straight away. But uh, despite that, they still had to take vectors to uh, delay their arrival because they hadn't completed all their preparations. Um, so perhaps they hadn't gone through all the checklists or they hadn't done a landing distance calculation, that kind of stuff, which is important when you've got a, a failure like this. You don't want to run off the runway. Right. Um, pardon me. But it sounds like, uh, yeah, uh, they you know, just had a brake problem. And um, I'm just, you know, I would never second guess a captain who decided that he wanted to evacuate his passengers through the slides, but doesn't look like there was a lot of fire. Uh, there's no there's no smoking around the moat, no scorching around the undercarriage legs and things there. So um, if the aircraft was just sitting there um, and not burning, I might have been tempted to leave everyone on board because, you know, you're generally speaking, you're going to get some injuries if you uh, throw everyone out the slides. I do believe I remember seeing some cell phone video taken by a passenger on the right side uh, looking at the right engine, and you could kind of see some liquid on the ground and i guess it must have been from the uh the firefighters uh spraying something on the left side and you could see a little bit of smoke so i guess there was some smoke coming out of it and you know as you said i we don't want to second guess uh captain's decisions uh regarding emergency evacuations because you know you're guaranteed to have some sort of an injury with a with an evacuation yeah um but uh and it, it might be that the cabin crew initiated it it could be uh, yeah. which yeah, and our land island is a possibility if they believe the aircraft uh, is in danger and on fire, uh, they they might do that. The right. captain might have been in a better position to uh, make the judgment. I don't know. Or he may have been relying I think in on... this case it was the captain that initiated it. But okay. Yeah, he said like, uh, and it was an interesting way to do it too. He goes, okay, get apparently... out <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it was un, un, undo your seatbelts and get out. It was something time. very, yeah, very short. Uh, but apparently I think that's that might SOP? have uh, raised to my brows in one of our uh, recurrent simulators had we initiated yeah, it an was, evacuation like that. It wasn't like what you'd, you're normally used to hearing for a an evacuation no. command. We have a very formal system, so the ground the cabin crew in absolutely no doubt. So mm-hmm. we press the PA and say, "This is an emergency. Evacuate, evacuate, evacuate." Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no one is any doubt as right. to what the situation say, is, and then they go into their blurb. This is the captain speaking. Evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. You know, is, is, there's no doubt. Yeah. Um, exactly. The um, the other thing that we're taught uh, is that in an abnormal situation or uh, an emergency situation, we have events that are uh, that you can take your time analyzing and taking appropriate actions. And then there are a couple of things like your airplane is on fire. Uh, that you need to get the airplane on the ground very quickly where you, uh, I think Dan has mentioned it before, we have like a no time bucket. Most of everything that we encounter is going to be in the bucket where you have time to work out things and think the uh, the problem and uh, actions through. And, and they stress to us, don't rush. You know, usually mistakes are made when you just are rushing unnecessarily. So uh, I don't, again, don't know if, what happened in this case there's not enough information for us to know exactly what the problem was uh, they just say a general you know hydraulic issue that can mean a whole bunch of different things so anyway 
Interesting. I think the most interesting thing thing about this was just looking at that picture of the ground down wheels. <laughs> I love yeah. it. It's surprisingly they... little damage, though, apart from that. Yeah. yeah. It's always interesting when that happens where it's just like halfway through the wheel. Like it's just, mm-hmm. you know, I think that one that landed with the uh, the jet blue with the nose the wheel, wheel cocked, side. yeah, yeah, 90 same degrees. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. Very cool. Okay, uh, let's see. Let's move on to the next item in the folder. D. IAF Jaguar suffers bird hit. What is that? The Indian something. Uh, Indian Air, Indian Air, Force. Air Force. Okay. Uh, suffers a bird strike. Pilot's action saves the aircraft and lives. And you really do need to look at this in the show notes because there's a really good video of this thing taking off and then hitting this flock of birds. And then you can see one of the engines basically flaming out. And then the best part, <laughs> Nick, can you describe what happens after it hits the flock of birds? And then, you yeah, can it's see- like one of those air show demos <laughs> you see where someone lets off a huge, great big bucket of uh, petrol. Uh, and there's an enormous orange flame because uh, you can see this aircraft climbing away. You can see the the uh, jet of flame coming out of the lake. I think it's the right-hand engine uh, when uh, that engine fails. And then you can watch his tanks tumble off. Uh, and then when they hit the ground, they ignite, which isn't necessarily common because, uh, you know, you've got to have some kind of spark or some kind of big uh, flame to ignite that fuel. It's an aviation fuel. It's not the easiest thing to set alight unless it aerosols. But then uh, as he climbs away, or actually he climbs, he doesn't really climb very, very much because he's on one engine now and a Jaguar is not overpowered. Um, uh, there's this huge um, ball of fire underneath him. And you think, whoa, that's impressive. I hope there's no one on the ground there. And that was my big worry because uh, they kind of do the usual thing. Uh, you know, when, when someone ejects out of an aircraft, uh, the pilot's always hailed a hero because uh, he guided it away from a school or from a hospital or whatever. And and quite honestly, I don't think I'd be, uh, we're all aviation experts here, and a lot of our listeners are, I don't think I'll be revealing any secrets when I say that most military pilots, um, whilst they might try and point away from the middle of a city, They've probably got way too much going on in the cockpit to peer down, see if there's a school there, stay with the aircraft, even if they can still control it, and then eject only when they know it's going to be safe. Don't tell them that, Nick. No, we're always (laughs) thinking about that. Yes, of course. And I I think the same thing here, because they see they... um, Despite the most serious emergencies staring in his face, the young pilot assessed the situation in seconds, jettisoned two additional fuel drop tanks and CBLS pods uh, as per standard operating procedures and safely landed. His actions bear testimony to the highest professional standards of the uh, Indian Air Force. Well, of course they do, because he did exactly what you're required to do, but he didn't really think about where his uh, tanks were going to land, because... You haven't got time. Uh, and a Jaguar on one engine, heavily laden, well, it's not hugely heavily laden, but it's certainly laden after takeoff. Uh, he's probably going to have to get rid of those um, uh, fuel tanks. Otherwise, he's going to struggle to uh, stay airborne on one engine. What What are um, carrier bomb light stores? Do they, are they something that would blow a up? CBLS? No, no. They're, oh. uh, they're usually um, just streamline carriers for practice bombs. Oh, okay. I was wondering because you were talking about, you know, what I was kind of surprised that the two fuel tanks 
exploded in such a huge fireball. Well, they they have practice bombs. The practice bomb will have a smoke and flash head. Okay. So it could have been uh, the smoke and flash uh, uh, element okay. of those practice bombs. They're not very heavy. Uh, and they simulate a bigger bomb, but uh, in order for the range officer to mark their position, when they hit the ground, there is smoke and flash so that they can uh, triangulate the position and give the, a score to the pilot. Uh, so that's the way those work. So they might well have ignited the uh, the fuel. Um, yeah. But, uh, it, you know, uh, Nige, my great friend, and our, you've met Nige, our friend, um, it's used to describe a Jaguar and single engine as being pretty dire. In fact, they uh, they used to have to have a special reheat setting uh, so they could put a small amount of reheat on the remaining engine because that's what they needed to maintain a decent flying uh, performance mm. on one engine. It, it really didn't have a lot of excess thrust when, when both engines, oh, unless both engines were going. Yeah. Um, I guess the best thing about this whole incident and article is the video which you'll have to go watch because it's pretty oh cool yeah yeah it's, it's definitely <laughs> yes, a, it's a must it's a shame it's not better quality but it's really good yeah it's, it looks like it was a, a hollywood um you know scene you know, one of those major crash scenes like or pyrotechnics and, yes yeah, yeah. all Absolutely. choreographed perfectly yeah it does doesn't it yeah yeah okay um, officials identify 10 Addison plane crash victims, including family of four. Okay. So there was an airplane, a King air three fifty I, I think they called it. I never heard of that myself, but a recent, uh, model of the Beechcraft uh, super King air series, a three fifty. Uh, I think it was built in 2017. So it's pretty new. Um, it crashed shortly after takeoff at Addison Airport in Texas, which is in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, Dallas area, north side. And uh, a family of four, a 28-year-old pilot, an executive of, of a prominent real estate firm, and his wife were among the 10 people who were lost in this crash. And it uh, crashed into a hangar, as, a, as we mentioned, shortly after takeoff. Witness reports and surveillance video show that it looked like uh, it wasn't uh, the speed was low, uh, that it uh, kind of swerved off to the left shortly after takeoff and then was almost inverted when it crashed into the hangar. The hangar had a Falcon 50 and a uh, some other air, a helicopter, I think, in it that I don't believe they were destroyed. Um, so I think there was some damage to at least one of those. Yeah, it was, there was some damage, aircraft. but it didn't yeah, look like yeah. they were destroyed. Looks like they could fix it. Um, but uh, again, not a lot of information yet. They have recovered the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. Um, there is some speculation that it does seem like this might be another. Uh, we seem to see a lot of these in the King Air, um, a, an engine failure and struggling to keep it flying uh, and uh, ended up crashing. But again, mm -hmm. that would be just speculation. Yeah, either way, sad, sad case, lots of... Um fatalities here right hmm. okay and then um, this is an interesting one and this is not the first time that we've heard stories like this on our show but it's always sad when we do hear about them um a man was in one of the i guess one of the gear uh compartments landing gear compartments and yep. uh, fell from a kenya airways flight uh, flight 100 on final approach to London Heathrow. 
uh, it was at the end of a nine-hour flight from Nairobi. The gruesome discovery was made at a property in Offerton Road, Clapham, at around 3.40 p.m. on Sunday. Police have, been, have now launched an investigation. And as I mentioned, it is believed the man fell from the landing gear compartment of the plane shortly before the flight was due to land. A bag, water, and food were later found in the landing gear compartment by police. In a statement, the Met confirmed police believe the man was a stowaway and had fallen from the landing gear of an inbound Kenya Airways flight to Heathrow. So, uh, police were called at 3.39 p.m. on Sunday to a residential address after the body was discovered in a garden. Yikes. And uh, desperation, you know, we've heard about this uh, so many times in some of these countries. Uh, people just, you know, trying to looking for any way find a better life, mm-hmm. a ticket out of whatever situation they're in. And uh, this one didn't end too well. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how common this is, uh, actually. Uh, I've just opened the wiki page, uh, which tries to list them but doesn't have a complete list, and there are literally dozens stretching back to 1946. Uh, and all types of aircraft, uh, um, you know, all destinations, but m- mainly from places like uh, Baku, Akutsk, um, uh, let me see, Lahore, um, from places where people might be desperate to get out of, but some other interesting ones, uh, uh, Johannesburg, uh, uh, even Vienna. Hmm. Uh, a chap flew from Vienna to London uh, in the undercarriage of a Boeing 747. He survived. Uh, the vast majority die, uh, whether it be from lack of oxygen or being uh, um, crushed by the landing gear or dying from the cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, or any combination of those. I don't know about uh, you, but I would do whatever it took to get out of Vienna. The people there are horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they make very nice cakes. They do. Yeah. I'm just kidding, people. Sausage? Our friends in Austria. <laughs> I love exactly that country. Right. Never been there, but I hope to. I've someday. never been, but I hear yeah. it's lovely. Very lovely. I'd like to visit. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's just really terrible that, you know, conditions in those places drive people to do things like this where, the odds of survival are slim to none anyway. Yeah, or well, people, regardless of whether they are so desperate to get away. Yeah, it doesn't uh, matter. They'll take their chance. They're in, they, yeah, take, exactly. In fact, when I used to go to places where this was a common thing, uh, when I did my walk around, uh, even though I couldn't see up into the wheel well, I used to stand on tiptoe and put my camera up and take pictures around the uh, undercarriage bays just to make sure they were there because there was an example of a uh, British Airways aircraft that uh, did two legs and eventually landed at, uh, um, I think, New York. And uh, they found that the body of the the person who stowed away was still in there and it had done a turnaround and got airborne again and no one had no. spotted him. Wow. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, not good. Not good at all. Uh, last item in the news folder, and you know, remember last what September twenty seventeen, not that long ago, about uh, like a couple of years ago, two, um, not even two years ago, one and a half years ago, uh, a uh, an Airbus A three eighty, Air France was flying across uh, over the top of Greenland when uh, they. Uh, suffered a serious failure to its outboard starboard engine GP7200 
and basically mm-hmm. the uh, entire fan disc separated from the engine and they'd been they've been searching for it ever since that incident and they found it um in a very piled or below uh, a bunch of snow that had piled up over the uh, last couple of seasons snowfall i was kind of impressed that it looks in the picture that i'm looking at here that it's a very deep hole that they've carved out and you can see the fan disc at the bottom of it and I'm thinking, it's got to be 30 feet deep. That's a lot deep. of snow. <laughs> I know, exactly. Makes you wonder how they, like, were they using sonar of some sort? Or? I thought uh, they say a synthetic aperture radar, which can penetrate uh-huh. uh, quite a long way down if it's uh, snow. It's not going to be terribly dense uh, because that radar can, you know, penetrate Earth. A lot of archaeologists use it mm-hmm. um, to find, uh, you know, things, and, and police use it for to locate buried bodies, that sort of thing. It's hmm. crazy. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing that most impressed me about this article was how deep that darn hole is and how much snow happened since September 2017. I thought everything was melting. Well, Greenland is not green. <laughs> no. Apparently Greenland is getting plenty. No, not of, everything's melting. Yeah, apparently no. not. <laughs> but some bits are. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, I think now it's time to get to uh, your feedback. Here we go. Captain, incoming message. Hey, Connor the Ramp Rat here. I was thinking about this for a while and was curious to see if either you or Dana flew down to Panama City right after the hurricane last year. When I was down there, we got a lot of MD-80s come in and out constantly, and I was actually down there working as part of the GO team for Acme Global Services to help start up operations for Acme. If either of you did fly down there when we started up our operations again, you might have crossed my path. I worked every day from 4 a.m. to 5 p.m. Whoa, seven days a week for about two to three weeks. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of work. Hopefully they paid you well for that. So anyway, um, nope, I don't think I was part of that at all from, you know, I don't remember much past a couple weeks ago, but I'm pretty sure I didn't do that. And I'm not sure about Dana. Maybe he did, but probably not either. Item two. This is from Class Bravo Chris. Wait, what? Dr. Steph. What? We need like a record. Like, Wait, what? Yeah. Dr. Steph, I was very surprised during your discussion about carbon monoxide on episode 376 that you declaratively said GA aircraft do not have carbon monoxide detectors. Now, I don't think you said that specifically. I think you said the ones that you uh, fly. Ours, the ones I've flown yeah. have not had them. Right. Uh, in, I might have declared that more definitively, but I will amend it to say yeah. well, the ones no, I have flown have not. That's what I got from you when you were yeah. talking about it. In contrary, pretty much every GA plane that I've rented over the last 15 years and on the West Coast, where it's rarely cold, Captain Dana, has had one of these in it. And then he says, see the pic. And so he has a picture mm-hmm. of a thing that looks like a Yeah, they're like a little card, card. Um, that you can just stick on the panel uh, panel there and it has a little uh detector that changes colors if it's exposed to carbon monoxide so mm-hmm. pretty simple hmm he says um maybe cirrus the kind of planes you rent discourages them since they take away from the beauty of those sexy lines on the panel Ooh, la, la. yeah struggling <laughs> to main fi- maintain 50 percent well thank you class bravo chris for 
helping us out, but I think... Uh, Actually, well. no, I went... So I've been flying a decent amount these past couple of weeks and every... And I've rented several different aircraft. None of them were Cirrus. They were all Cessna 172s and not a single one has a carbon monoxide detector in it. Whoa. Interesting. There so, you go. Yeah. So I think we're well over 50% then. Class Bravo, Chris. I think it just depends on the... I don't know. The operation. On something? <laughs> on something. Yeah. So I don't know. I can't help you with that one because, um, I mean, it makes good sense. And, um, I did bring it to the attention of the, um, of a couple of the CFIs and they're like, Nope, we don't have them, but not sure why not. So maybe we'll, maybe all of a sudden you'll start seeing them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, one other thought about detectors, he continues, why don't airlines install wingtip detectors on jets similar to what most of us now have in our cars when backing up or squeezing into a parking spot, you know, the things that go beep, 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 you would still need wing walkers, but this would seemingly be another way to make sure that there isn't a collision on the ramp. If my Volvo can alert me to cross traffic when backing up, certainly Airbus or Boeing can figure this out, right? Um, my car doesn't have one of those either. So does he mean, literally mean <laughs> like when a truck is backing up and it makes no, the no, 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 like in the car, you know, um, mm-hmm. A lot of cars have these advanced warning or safety warning features Mm -hmm. now where if you're approaching or getting close to an obstacle, it beeps at you within the car. car. Okay. Yeah. Well, I I can tell you why. Because the wingtip walker would keep setting them off. Oh, yeah. Because that's where he stands. And they'll go, oh, there's there's an obstacle there. So you go, oh, obstacle. Oh, quick, stop. And then the wingtip walker go, no, no, we're fine. So you go, oh, okay, uh, all right. Anyway, no, uh, actually, it's not a bad idea. Um, we're, I think the industry is often very slow to move uh, in these circumstances. Uh, and quite honestly, if you're doing your job properly and sticking to the center line of a taxiway, you're not going to bump into many things. So if you park the aircraft correctly, I mean, it, it's a pretty well-regimented area, but it's not a bad idea. I certainly think more cameras uh, around an aircraft would be great because um, they are usable in more situations. So I would like to see sort of uh, swivel cameras that you can look at your engines, you can look at your undercarriage, you can uh, look at your wingtips if you wanted to. Um, uh, that to me would be much more valuable. Uh, and we're slowly getting there because the 380 has got a nice set, the 340's got a nice set. I'm pretty sure the, um, the 350 will have uh, a good set of um, cameras. I don't know about the uh, Dreamliner. It might well have cameras as well. So I, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing. We've all got a bunch of TV screens on the cockpit. It doesn't cost much to wire up a uh, little camera. They're tiny nowadays, and you can fit them almost anywhere. It's, you know, it's a simple job. I you know, it's probably more to do with the fact that you have to get it all certified, and then you have to enter that in the minimum equipment list and go through all the different scenarios of, well, can yep. we go without this? Ca- how many cameras do we have? To, you know, I would imagine that that's probably where all the cost and time comes in to implement one of these things. But I, I agree. Exactly. I think that would yeah. be a great idea to have the more cameras, the better I say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good point. Uh, class Bravo, Chris, there you have it. Um, Kelly Kirk sent in some feedback, greetings, APG crew and community. I hope everybody is doing well. Actually, he said, I hope everyone is doing well. I just wanted to drop a quick note about my recent flight at the, Delta Flight Museum in early May. Sim flight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
Did I say I didn't say sim flight, did I? No. Recent okay. sim flight at the Delta Flight Museum in early May. I came down to ATL on May 7th and spent a few hours exploring the museum and looking at all the exhibits. There must have been a big flight attendant hiring event there because of all the people in interview clothing being guided through the museum. Uh, I didn't take the time to do the 747 experience, but plan to on a future visit. When I checked into the museum, I was asked to list the airports I wanted to visit, so I put my home airport of MSP, Minneapolis-St. Paul, on the list, as well as JFK and Amsterdam. I was also asked to list my flight experience, and I put my 210 hours down. I waited my turn, and while waiting, I pulled out my iPad and started reviewing the plates for those airports on ForeFlight. I didn't really know what to expect. As the group before me finished, I took my seat on the flight deck. Rudy was my instructor. He and I talked about what I wanted to do, and I told him I was working on my instrument rating. He said, okay. The first few minutes were spent getting the seats adjusted and a quick overview of the panel. We departed ATL on 8 left, I believe, and climbed out and did a few turns and other basic air work to get a feel for the plane. After about five or so minutes, he paused the sim and positioned the airplane about 30 miles from Minneapolis-St. Paul on an intercept heading for the ILS for 30 left. Then he said, let me give you a little weather. A second or two later, and the clear skies and visibility disappeared into a gray soup. He coached me down the localizer, and I put the plane down on the runway, but I don't think the passengers would have enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> we did another approach, this time using the flight director, and I landed on the runway. And he told me that I would have passed the check ride. I don't know if he was being sincere or blowing smoke. Either way, it was fun. We did the Canarsie visual into John F. Kennedy and some day VFR approaches into uh, Amsterdam Schiphol. At the end, he asked me if I wanted to try one at night. I said, sure. And he told me that if I could make this one, I'd be a rock star. He showed me the approach first and then handed me the controls. I don't remember the name of the airport, but it was a mountain airport in Mexico with only a 4,000-foot runway, no glide slope or pappy, and you couldn't even see the airport until you crossed a mountain ridge. I did pretty well on the approach until the very last moments and landed just short of the blast pad. After that last landing, sadly, my time was up. He took a few pictures of me with my phone and handed me a certificate. As we were exiting the sim, I asked him what were the conditions on the instrument approaches we did. He looked at the computer and said, 200-foot ceiling with a 1600 RVR, which translates to one-quarter mile visibility. He told me that that was a no-poop, he said, edited for on-air, no-poop instrument approach. All in all, it was a remarkable experience, and I hope someday I can do it again. Clear skies and tailwinds, Kelly Kirk. Ah, that sounds like an awesome experience, Kelly. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, breaking out of minimums at 200 feet uh, yep. in poor visibility and completing a good landing is uh, not the easiest thing in the world to do. And there are plenty of professional pilots out there who would approach it with a lot of uh, nervous apprehension. So congratulations. I agree completely. Okay, now we have some audio feedback from Gail. Hi, everyone. This is Gail. Um, I'm a new listener. Thanks to hearing Captain Nick on the Every Little Thing podcast. It was very interesting. So I hunted him down, well, his podcast down. And the rest of you are uh, very fun and entertaining as well. I wanted to give some feedback to episode 369, where Mark talked about 
the fun of walking on the tarmac and then going up the air stairs. I actually do this a fair amount because I fly in and out of small Austrian towns. Most of the times, um, Linz, which is the Blue Danube Airport, and Innsbruck. Um, depending on sort of the size of the flight and the time of the day, um, especially in Linz, you typically will just walk out the door of the terminal, uh, across the tarmac, and then up either the integrated air stairs or, you know, of course, the wheelie ones, which in Europe are not that exciting or special. Um, I actually have a picture from the time that um, I walked across the tarmac in Innsbruck because it was so pretty. Um, my sister thought that um, maybe I was walking towards a private plane. I wasn't. I'll send the picture to your guys' email address so you can take a look. That time, I believe um, I was flying Austrian Airlines and it was a Dash 8 400. And so, um, so while it's not super common to take the air stairs in Europe, I start, it seems like if you're flying in and out of the little tiny towns, it's pretty common. Um, anyways, thanks so much. Uh, I will listen more later. Bye. Thanks, Gail. I'm busily trying to pull up the photo. Do, do you see that? I do no? see it. Yep. Okay. Finally. Yeah, isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, beautiful. Stunning. Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, place, isn't it? I suspect with a low cloud base, that might be uh, on the um, you know <laughs> on the tricky uh, list. Not night. Yeah, tricky, a tricky approach. I think we'd say yes, but uh, and if uh, she she uh, got the airplane right. That's a uh, Q four hundred, I believe. Although I would question uh, Gail. Love, by the way, lovely to uh, have you uh, listening to the show, and thanks very much for uh, finding us. Uh, after every little thing, I'm going to say that's not quite so much an air stare as uh, an air uh, step. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, four stairs. Well, you can kind of sort of count. There it, is more it? than okay. one, you know. All right, fair enough. Okay. It's an air stair then. An air stepping I, I, stool. I think you're tool. just walking up the inside of the door myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gail, don't let him scare you away. <laughs> We right. appreciate the rest of us. Appreciate it came across all nice and yeah. you know, yeah, nice and fluffy on, on yeah. every little thing, yeah, because I was on my best behavior. Every little, every little jerky thing, I guess I could have called it. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, we have some new listeners from, or at least one from that. That was an excellent, yeah. uh, an excellent uh, performance by our good old Captain Nick. Oh, it was easy there. A very nice host, uh, and it's a great podcast uh, but that's a lovely little airplane that one uh, i think um, they must enjoy flying that yeah a beautiful uh setting dave is a new listener and he has a sort of a medical kind of question and so let's uh play this audio hi everybody my name's dave i'm a full-blown ab geek from england and a very late coming to this superb podcast it was only while looking at twitter well, I follow dozens of pilots and other AV geeks that I stumbled across the podcast. And I'm extremely happy I did. I've now got a hell of a lot of material to listen to as I'm driving the length and breadth of the UK. My boring job as a salesperson. I do actually enjoy my job. And it's, a, it's a very rewarding job. But, you know, compared to what you guys get up to on a daily basis, it's boring. My wonderful do daughter, Isabel. She's 11. She's also a very keen AB geek, and we spend many happy hours in and around the Manchester airport watching takeoffs and the landings. 
I also help Isabel with her own YouTube channel called Airline Kids, where she likes to film and present videos of her flights, holidays, trips to the airport viewing park, etc. We also take day flying trips together as well, just to get some material for the channel. Hopefully this will grow in the coming years and she'll be able to spread her wings a little bit further. Anyway, the main reason for this feedback is to ask a medical question about gaining my PPL. I'm hoping to start my PPL training next year, with the goal to progress as far as I possibly can do for a 46-year-old guy. But over the last 12 years, I've suffered from sporadic migraines. I have the pain under control, thankfully, but what I am concerned about is the migraine aura that I experience at the beginning of the attack. Vision becomes blurry, I get the usual flashing lights that a lot of people get, but it lasts for about 10 to 15 minutes. After this, my vision returns to normal and I'm fully functional again. After about 45 minutes, albeit a little bit groggy. I have gone 12 months without an attack before, but usually I get them about twice a year. Touch wood, I haven't had one for about six months, and I'm hoping that, like my father, these will disappear in my mid-40s. Obviously, as a budding pilot, this is far from ideal. My question to you guys, and in particular Dr. Steph, I guess, is do you know what the regulations are in and around this sort of medical complaint? I have looked on the CAA website for answers, and it appears quite vague. I'm intrigued to know if you have ever come across this sort of problem yourself or with your fellow pilots. Anyway, thanks again for producing such a superb podcast. I actually became an exec producer last week to help in some small way and also to show my appreciation. All the best, everybody, in the sunny side up. Thank you very much. And Dave, especially thank you for becoming an exec- executive producer of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Absolutely. Very yeah, thank kind. You. Thank you very much. So he's in the UK, so might be slightly different than what happens here. Um, but uh, as he mentions, you know, migraine headaches, especially with aura, which oftentimes are visual events that can interfere with your ability to see clearly. Um, there's different uh, varieties of that. They can they can manifest in different ways. It has to do with kind of this depression of electrical activity within the the brain that precedes the actual onset of the headache. Um, and basically, what happens here. Um, in the US under FAA guidelines is that if you have that type of a headache, that has to be submitted to the FAA by the aviation medical examiner and it requires a decision. And it'll take into account, you know, how often your headaches are, what your actual symptoms are, how well you function with those symptoms, what type of medication you may or may not be prescribed for it if you have to take it. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. So my recommendation in these cases is I know you're, you know, wanting to get started with your flying training. I would if you were here in the US, I would say get your medical first because um, you you want to know that you're going to be able to, at the end of the day, have a medical certificate in hand that allows you to fly and pursue that goal. You don't want to get through all of that training and money spent only to find out that you don't actually qualify for a medical, which would be not a great thing, but you know you want to know that in advance, certainly. Couldn't, and, you, couldn't you give him a note? A note? Yeah, write a note. <laughs> I'm sure that the uh, CAA will be happy to accept a note from <laughs> Dr. Dr. Staff. Okay. They wouldn't be able to read it anyway. No, you can't read my handwriting. It's not good. <laughs> She's a real doctor. Is there can't an electronic <laughs> submission <laughs> for these things? Um, yeah, they, uh, here in the U.S., it requires a decision by the FAA, and they take a lot of information into account from your AME. They may ask you to see a specialist or have certain testing done or um you know, there, there's a lot of different things they could could ask for. 
In the UK, and I've had a reasonable amount of experience with getting through various medical issues with the CAA. The only thing I can say, Dave, is that the CAA, despite their reputation uh, for those initials standing for the campaign against aviation, uh, their medical division uh, are actually very proactive. And they, if they possibly can, will uh, help you into the air. They will do their best to give you a medical. Um, but uh, with this kind of Thing. I, I know a couple of uh, pilots in our companies, in my company, uh, who suffered from migraines. And for them as commercial pilots, uh, they sadly had to stop flying uh, until the situation was resolved. So I think Steph's advice is very good. Uh, seek advice now uh, from a professional uh, who has connections with the CA. So go and see an AME. It's not going to be yeah. hugely expensive. And, uh, you know, ask their opinion. There we go. Good advice. Moving on to item six. Hi, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. I thought you might be interested in this photo on the flight deck of Concorde doing Mach 2, which I took back in 1979-80. There's a brief audio feedback attached. If you discuss this on the podcast, please don't mention... Okay. Um, very good. So... Uh, he sent in some audio feedback to accompany this photo, which is, um, are you looking at the photo crew? I guess that's the, um, yes. beyond the glass yep. windshield is the actual part of the nose cone that comes up and covers it during supersonic uh -huh. flight. We saw that at, uh, yep. that's how, saw that functioning at Duxford. Yeah. So there are, cool. there are two windshields there effectively. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oops. Sorry. God bless you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so let's take a look at, or let's take a listen to the audio accompanying the feedback. Hello, Captain Jeff and all the APG crew. It's Swansea Mark here. I've been listening to the podcast for about 18 months now. I went right back to number one and got as far as 237 before I decided I'd better jump to the present I've got a trip coming up to Oshkosh in the summer and I wanted to hear if you're all going to be there and it sounds as though you are so I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Uh, I've been working for the last 30 odd years as a cardiac doctor in the good old UK National Health Service but uh, I guess uh, like lots of people I'm a frustrated wannabe airline pilot and uh, it all started for me with a flight deck ride on a Comet 4C back at the age of nine. I'd had my first flight in a venerable DC-6, even older than Captain Jeff's Mad Dog. And uh, over the years, I grabbed loads of flight deck rides, including Concorde. Uh, of course, it all came to an end in uh, 2001 with 9-11. And uh, after a year, I was uh, so depressed, I said to my wife, uh, how can I manage the rest of life without another flight deck? visit and she said you just have to get your own flight deck and bought me a couple of trial flying lessons and of course I ended up getting my license and I've been flying ever since then. I've also been lucky with my uh, specialty work. A few years ago one of my colleagues uh, spotted an advert in the British Medical Journal. Uh, a large national uh, regulation authority, I shall call them the ACME Aviation Authority, we're looking for a cardiac doctor to see pilots and advise them on people with cardiac conditions. 
and uh, I was very lucky to get the job and uh, I'm still enjoying uh, working and uh, helping pilots with cardiac conditions to uh, to keep flying. Um, so uh, anyone out there who's uh, struggling to keep an interest in uh, aviation going, I'd encourage them to look at what skills they've got and to see if they can uh, use them in aviation. Uh, I've done a quick donation to the Coffee Fund to say thanks for keeping me going through the last year of my uh, health service career. You kept me company on the commutes in the uh, early mornings and the late evenings. And looking forward to seeing you all in Oshkosh. And thanks so much for the podcast. It's brilliant. Cheers from Swansea Mark. Bye. Swansea Mark, you're the one who is brilliant. Thank you. Indeed. Great feedback. Yeah, very kind. I can, I can completely empathize with the frustrated uh, airline pilot uh, <laughs> want to be frustrated want to no, be airline no, pilot uh, Steph gets just frustrated with the airline pilots that she knows well that's a different oh, okay. problem entirely <laughs> both both problems yeah that's with her <laughs> HR hat on yes yes that hat can come off though it's okay okay uh, but no that's great and um, I actually think there's some feedback coming up later about whether I would do aviation medical stuff so we'll get to that in a little bit but it sounds as though Swansea Mark has taken up that role a little bit at least for his particular specialty. Yeah. No, I, of course, uh, had a heart problem uh, uh, probably 20 years ago, so I suspect Swansea Mark wasn't uh, associated with uh, the campaign against aviation back then. <laughs> but um, uh, I... Wait a minute, is it really so, called that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. Of course. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, and they're, uh, yeah. The headquarters is called the Belgrano. Um, Don't get it. No. Okay, uh, the Belgrano was a battleship that we sank in the Falklands War. Oh, and uh. it, it looks grey <laughs> and depressing, like the side of a battleship. Gotcha. Anyway, by by the by, um, <laughs> and no pilot likes to step inside in case he gets sunk. Um, so uh, no, uh, I the the heart chap specialist I saw there was an ex. Uh, Oh, he might have been air vice marshal. Um, Cook with an E on the ends. Cookie, everyone called him Cookie. And I think uh, I was one of his last patients because I think he's retired. And I think as a final gift to aviation, he signed me off, <laughs> which was very <laughs> nice of him. So I kept my job. Gift to aviation? Had, or? The world has never gift. been the same. Yes, okay. a gift for it. Yes, <laughs> exactly right. Um, so I've always uh, got a soft spot for the uh, medical folk uh, in the. Uh, uh, in Acme Aviation Authority. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Swansea Mark, and uh, thank you for joining the Coffee Bar Club Fun Cadre. Cadre. And we'll see you in Oshkosh. <laughs> yes. Looking, Looking forward, forward to, to that. that. Yes. What do we say? Uh, jinx? Yeah. Uh. Okay. Uh, item seven. This from Anonymous. Z? Z, he calls himself. As a long-distance commercial pilot, I would love to hear Captain Nick's review of this extensive article on, and this is the name of the article, What Really Happened to Malaysia's Missing Airplane? Oh, do tell. It must be definitive. It must be the final answer. And so now Captain Nick is going to tell us what he thinks about this. You're muted for some reason. Uh, sorry, I, I I covered up the screen there. Couldn't see I was <laughs> muted. <laughs> the first thing I was going to say was, 
uh, it's an extremely long article, which uh, means that uh, I had to spend a considerable amount of time looking at it. And quite honestly, uh, I got uh, a little bit bored with it because uh, the vast majority of it is just a rehash of... No, is this in, the Atlantic article? I think I read it. Uh, it is uh, called What Really Happened to Malaysia's Missing Airplane. That's, That's the title. From the Atlantic. The... Yes, it is. Okay, it is gotcha. from the Atlantic. Yes, yeah. I, I also... Yeah. I no, I found the... Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the... Um, they, I don't know how much of it is is new. Uh, hardly anything. This is not a bad summary of uh, everything that's gone on. Um, the author is fairly critical of uh, Malaysia's search and rescue, um, which to me has no real bearing on the matter. Uh, I disagree with the author's uh, comments that uh, it wasn't an accident scenario. It wasn't like any accident scenario seen before. Um, many aircraft have flown for a considerable time with no one actively at the controls. Uh, we've covered a number of uh, those stories, and I've done plain tales about them. So, yeah, it's quite uh, feasible. Um, and the author seems very unwilling to accept that it's possible for an airliner uh, of that age and design to disappear without some electronic footprint. Uh, well, uh, no, it was extremely easy uh, for an airliner to disappear without any electronic footprint, whilst he seems to think that you can't uh, ever lose an email. Um, it's always there somewhere, uh, unless you've got something uh, transmitting uh, from the aircraft uh, and somewhere to receive it. Uh, an airliner will disappear uh, very easily, and an ocean uh, is a vast place to, to look for it. So, um, it, yeah, I, I don't like that bit. Um, he accuses Malaysian officials of obfuscation, uh, but there were plenty of other observers around. There were a lot of Australians, NTSB, etc. Um, so the Malaysians, whilst they were the overall authority, uh, there were lots of people there giving out news and information. Um, we, he talks for a while about the Inmarsat data handshakes that were going on, which they used to gain an approximate position using Doppler shift. But that's far from an exact science, and Imarsat were only just working out how they could do it. Uh, and it's it was certainly not like a, um, a GPS system where you can get a, a, a pinpoint position. So uh, he indicates that uh, it's possible the aircraft ended a sharp descent. Well, I'm going to take that with a very large pinch of salt because uh, I don't believe the system could be interrogated that accurately. And I wouldn't put too much value in those readings. Covers um, a lot of the uh, conspiracies, uh, and he does those with a nicely jaundiced eye, and I would agree with all that. But again, another criticism of the Malaysian authorities for the lack of data in the accident report. But to be fair, there wasn't a lot of data to um, go on with uh, about that incident. Uh, he believes it's inconceivable that the known flight path accompanied by radio and electronic science was caused by any combination of system failure and human error, computer glitch, control system collapse, score lines, etc. Um, and I disagree with him. There are lots of reasons why this aircraft might have done, and we just do not know. And to dismiss so many possible uh, failures, um, I think, is probably uh, a little bit um, yeah, over the top. 
Um, uh, he talks about an aircraft being turned. This is part of the evidence he has supposedly revealed, making a very hard turn at altitude, which would indicate to him that there was someone at the control since an autopilot uh, wouldn't uh, do that. Well, I'm going to say that you can't really turn an aircraft very hard at altitude because once you exceed... Uh, you don't need to go much beyond the angular bank that an autopilot will give you. And at altitude, you're very quickly into uh, pre-stall buffet and the aircraft, uh, you start putting the aircraft in a dangerous position. So no one's going to try and do sharp turns at altitude. just doesn't happen. Uh, so I would say that the radar data was probably uh, in error there. And also radar data, certainly of the civilian type, doesn't show altitude. Uh, you need to have a transponder to get an accurate altitude. And so it's almost impossible to tell uh, what the aircraft was doing from this supposed expert who was trying to analyze radar data. Um, military, even military uh, altitude radar that is specifically designed to try and work out what high aircraft are um, only works uh, in a sort of very rough area. It's very hard to tell an exact altitude because certainly at range, the radar returns are extremely large and encompass, you know, uh, uh, several miles across. Um, he talks about a deliberate depressurization. Well, he talks about that without any evidence. Then he really zeroes in on the captain picking his life apart. Um, but quite honestly, uh, there are people with different likes and different habits all around the world. And for me, there is nothing particularly out of the ordinary. Uh, and uh, I personally think it's a, a very unlikely suicidal situation. So all in all, uh, that's my summing up of the uh, uh, article. Um, I'm really not interested in entering a discussion about it. But uh, suffice to say, for me, there's nothing particularly new. And um, we're only really going to find out exactly what happened uh, when we uh, get hold of the uh, data recorders, find the, uh, the wreckage, and uh, get specific information. Uh, up to that point, we're really all guessing. Yeah. And uh, I like the way you said that because I, too, think that we will eventually find this aircraft. I know a lot of people don't feel that way, but I think our nature as humans is to explore things and someone will be looking for something completely unrelated and just happen to, you know, stumble across this at some point. Yeah, very much. You know, I was looking at the the name of the author of this article and I thought, why does that look so familiar? And so while you were talking, I looked up on Wikipedia, William Langa Vicha, and he is the son of Wolfgang Langa Vicha. Um, apologies if I'm not pronouncing that exactly right. Uh, he is the author of that book called Stick and Rudder, uh, written in 1944 by his father Wolfgang, describing how airplanes fly and how they should be flown by pilots. It's become a standard reference text for aviators. Well, that's interesting. Any, uh, any indication of his background? The sun. Um, the sun is a, it says, the only thing here that it says is that he's a, a professional airline pilot or airplane pilot, not airline pilot, uh, for many years. And he also has, has a list of all of his, um, awards and, um, things that he's been nominated over, over the many years, most of them having to do with, um, 
aviation or and or space flight. And, well, uh, he obviously has uh, a lot of qualifications, yeah. so uh, hence it was a you know a well researched uh, article. Mm-hmm. But we don't all have to agree. No, I agree. I agree with not agreeing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I kept thinking, why does that last name look so darn familiar? And that's it. Uh, this gentleman, William, is was born in 1955. He's 64, so about uh, about my age. age. Yeah, Nick's yeah. age. Yeah. Okay. Well, well you, who would win in in fisticuffs? Hmm. I think that you'd have to be the guy. <laughs> I haven't seen a picture of him, so I've, yeah, I, don't I don't know. know. I don't know. He might, he might be six for eight. You never know. I think Anderson wins over Langavija every day. <laughs> I don't know why, but there we go. Okay. Um, moving on to uh, some humor from Texas Charlie. And he said, this is via Facebook, an oldie but goodie. And uh, I'm not going to, I don't know if I'll do all of these, but... Uh, let's just start off from the top. You might be a redneck pilot. If now, for those of you in the U.S. are uh, you're uh, familiar with Jeff Foxworthy, uh, a gentleman that sometimes when I hair, my hair is a little bit longer, people think say, "Oh, you you kind of look like Jeff Foxworthy." Anyway, he's a comedian uh, who is also from Georgia, I think Hapeville, Georgia, and uh, he is a comedian, and he that's one of his things is doing redneck humor. And uh, so this is kind of a takeoff on that. You might be a redneck pilot if your stall warning horn plays Dixie. Your your cross country flight plan uses flea markets as checkpoints. You think sectionals? Hey, sometimes those are easy to see from the air. There you go. That's I will say very very uh, you know pertinent. You think sectionals charts should show trailer parks? I think actually, don't they sometimes show trailer parks? Uh, maybe. I think they do. Uh, you've you've uh, ever used moonshine as avgas? It would probably it's work. Actually, strong stuff. <laughs> uh, you have mud flaps on your wheel pants. Um, you think GPS stands for going perfectly straight? <laughs> your toothpick keeps poking your mic. Uh, you constantly confuse beechcraft with beech nut. Beach Nut is a uh, chewing tobacco uh, yeah. brand. Your toothpick keeps poking your mic. Oh, I think I already read that one. Yeah. Um, you have a black airplane with a big number three on the side. <laughs> Dale Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. It's NASCAR, the number three. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, yeah, Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. It's Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've, ever, <laughs> you've ever just taxiing around the airport drinking beer. <laughs> I think no, Steph, no, I'm not actually going anywhere. Steph's done that, I think, a few uh, times. <laughs> that's that's legal, I think. No? no uh, probably not. Well, it is if you're a passenger. <laughs> yes. if, if, yeah. Oh, yeah. Going to the RV thing again, aren't you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice try. Uh, you use a Perina feed bag for a windsock. That <laughs> work. Uh, you've ever fueled your airplane from a mason jar. <laughs> Sounds like moonshine being yeah, added there. The moonshine yeah. thing again. You've got a gun rack on the passenger window. <laughs> uh, rednecks here, a lot of them. Just well, because hey, you have a gun rack. Got, yeah. If you got a deer in your way when you're trying to land, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it could one come low in pass handy. should take care of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have more than one roll of duct tape holding your cowling together. Mm. Uh, your pre-flight includes removing all of the clover, grass, and wheat from your landing gear. 
you figure the weight of mud and manure on your airplane into the CG calculations. <laughs> I love it. You siphon gas from your tractor to put into your airplane. Um, what to mix with the moonshine. Yeah. Well, yeah. You've never landed in an actual airport, though you've been flying for years. <laughs> you've ground looped after hitting a cow. There are parts of your airplane labeled John Deere. Anyway, there's more. We'll put... Oh, uh, you want to know my favorite? Yes, what's yours? Yes. You navigate with your ADF tuned exclusively to country station. Yes. <laughs> and that would be an easy thing to do. It's actually. AM radio. Yep. Wouldn't you just end up in Nashville? Uh, oh, they're all over the place, actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. You wouldn't be caught dead flying a Grumman Yankee. <laughs> there's a sign on the side of your aircraft advertising your septic tank service <laughs> uh, lots of good stuff uh, in there yeah hey, read, read all of them. speaking of good stuff let's uh i just noticed something here from his mansion near the Historic Concord Covered Bridge. He is a motorcycle rider, a pontoon boat skipper, a bourbon connoisseur, and so much more. He's our friend and co-host, Captain Dana. Well, hello, guys. Sorry I'm a little late today to uh, the show, but I've uh, been, uh, been a little busy. So how you guys doing? Oh, we've been doing just fine. Good. We've been knocking out the news and the feedback. We're, we're just rolling along. And, yeah, I was uh, listening in here for a little bit. All right. so. Glad you could join us. Yeah, I'll, I'll be, uh, I've actually got my, uh, my brother-in-law over here. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife's, uh, my wife's sister, her husband, mm -hmm. he's, uh, over here in the corner and listening to the show. He actually listens to the show. Oh. I just found this out. <laughs> so another, another one that's been corrupted. Oh, no. So, uh, I kind of have a guest, uh, guest we listener get, over here. Apologize. His name's Will. And We're well, so hey, uh, Will. Hello, hi. He's saying hello, hi. Here in the background, there. if there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah, so it's been it's been fun. Excellent. Haven't been flying. Been just out there uh, living a life of leisure. I I assume. Yeah, uh, fantastic fireworks on the lake on Wednesday evening when uh, Will and Chrissy arrived. We went straight up to the lake and uh, watched the fireworks. In celebration of the Fourth of July, which is obviously a night early, and I've uh, been on the lake pretty much entertaining ever since. So, and uh, they're here, and we're going to probably say hello for a little bit, and then drop off and head on out for dinner. All so, right, very good. Well, I'm glad that you made an appearance. Well, Pulled yourself you away from the boat long enough to be on the show with us. Well, I'll miss you guys. Miss you guys. We Actually, feel honored. Highly honored. Yes. No, 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 I'm honored to be here Aww. to see you guys. It's so nice to be here. So actually, my friends, they, they had on the boat today. Um, they had upped and just dropped everything here in the U.S. of A. and moved all the way to New Zealand last year, year and a year and a half ago. Hmm. Didn't know anybody or anything about it, but uh, they just decided to move. Okay. They love it. So we got to host them today on the boat. That was fun. Oh, nice. So. It's an aviation podcast, so I'll stop. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, uh, we were just talking about uh, the, the humor that Texas Charlie sent in and it kind of reminiscent of Jeff Foxworthy's, you might be a redneck if, 
but uh, in this case, a redneck pilot. So again, we'll include the rest. Of, we, we covered most of them. So uh, there are just a few here that we didn't do. And uh, you know what? We should probably just finish it up. Might, might as well, right? Because we, yeah. after we hit most of them, uh, there's exhaust residue on the right side of your aircraft and tobacco stains on the left. I can understand why. You might be a redneck pilot if you have to buzz the, buzz the strip to chase off the sheep and the goats. You might be a redneck pilot if your primary comm radio has 90 channels. Not sure I understand that. I don't know that one. Yeah, not, not getting that one. Uh, you might be a redneck pilot if you put hay in the baggage compartment so your dogs don't get cold. Aww. Aww. Uh, you might be a redneck pilot if you've got matching bumper stickers on the vertical uh, vertical fin. Uh, let's see we, oh, this is a good one. You might be a redneck pilot if there's grass stains on your propeller tips. <laughs> um, you might be a redneck pilot if the FAA still thinks you live at your parents' house. Mm. Um, actually, that, that one's more sad. That is sad. Yeah. And it could apply to non-redneck pilots as well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's see. You might be a redneck pilot if you think that an ultralight is a new sissy beer from Budweiser. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) I like that Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steph's already mentioned this next one, so I'll skip that one. Uh, You might be a redneck pilot if there's a sign on. Oh, I've already done that one, too. Uh, You might be a redneck pilot if you subscribe to the Southern Aviator because of the soft paper. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Um, Dual purpose. You might be a redneck pilot if you've ever incorporated sheetrock into the repair of your aircraft. <laughs> that looks fine. Should uh, work. You might be a redneck pilot if you've ever tried to impress your girlfriend by buzzing her double wide. That's a double wide. You might trailer. need to explain it, that. It ain't, it ain't home until you take the wheels off. <laughs> <laughs> a double wide. We have single wides and double wides here. Uh, trailers, motorhomes. What, what do we call those? Uh, mm, mobile, mobile homes. Mobile homes. mobile homes. Yeah, not motorhome. Mobile home because yeah. m- mobile homes don't have motors. Um, Correct. And uh, yeah, so the double wide is just uh, take two single wides, put them together basically, and you have a much more spacious. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You might be a redneck pilot if the pre-printed portion of your weight and balance sheet contains, quote, case of bud, (laughs) Budweiser. And uh, finally, you might be a redneck pilot if your go, no-go checklist includes the words skull or red man. And again, those are two other chewing tobacco brands, along with the uh, first one that we mentioned, which was, uh, what was it called? Where was it? Uh, Beach Beach Nut. Yeah, Yeah, there we go. So thank you, Texas Charlie. Maybe Texas Charlie is a redneck pilot. A redneck. Yeah. Yeah. He's like going through. He's like, yep. Yep. <laughs> Check. Yep. Got it. Yep. Uh, I'm a redneck pilot. Hey, uh, we have some questions from Nicholas. Uh, just a question for Captain Jeff. Oh, oh, uh-oh. putting me on the spot here. Recently, we have had the, oh, before I do that, uh, an earlier piece of feedback, Dana talked about, um, the uh uh let's see who was it again it was uh connor the ramp rat i believe and he works for acme global services and was wondering uh, he went down there to help the uh, with the aftermath of the hurricane uh down in uh, pardon Uh, no i said okay and uh he said he noticed a whole bunch of uh, uh mad dogs going in and out of there uh, during that time. And he was down there for, I think he said uh, a few weeks uh, working 
basically seven days a, uh, a week and very long hours. And he was wondering if you, you or I were involved in that operation at all. And I said, I, I wasn't. And I don't think you were either because you probably No, I, I was it. not. Okay. No, Connor, I was not. Sorry. Okay. So back to this one from Nick Hewitt. Uh, recently, we've had the pleasure of having an MD82 operating out of my local airport, uh, Cardiff, UK, on a weekly charter for a holiday company. I've noticed on the two occasions I've gone down to the airport to see its arrival slash departure that it has a very long takeoff roll. The airport has a 7,800 foot asphalt runway and the aircraft uses the majority of that before it rotates. So my questions are, is this normal for the Mad Dogs to need such a long runway? Is this maybe a load factor for this particular aircraft and route? Finally, at what point would you consider aborting a takeoff if you have a particularly long roll rollout for a flight? I can imagine that it would be a tough decision to make. Thanks for your time, and as usual, for the amazing podcast you guys provide for us all. I hope my small monthly contribution helps keep you all well-oiled with beer. From a happy APG syndrome patient, Nick Cardiff. And thank you. We appreciate all of our Coffee Fun Gar Bar Club cadre people. Um, contributing your hard-earned money to help us with the uh, offset some of the cost of doing the show and meetups and all that kind of stuff. So you guys are awesome. Um, so to answer, uh, it really depends on a lot of things. Um, you know, six thousand—I mean, seven thousand eight hundred feet—not um, not that long, but not that short either. Um, and uh, it really depends on you know how long is the flight that these charters are doing. Um, if it's a long flight that requires a lot of fuel and they're probably packed with passengers, so they're probably heavy, uh, that has a lot to do with how long your, your takeoff run is going to be. Um, the, uh, it, it, it might depend on the flap settings they're using. Uh, Dana and I can attest to the fact that if we have a longer runway, sometimes we'll use a lower flap setting. Normally it's flaps 11, but a lot of times we'll use a flap five setting which uh, means that the takeoff run is going to be much longer than the normal takeoff run. Um, it, I don't know what uh, the weather has been like, but if it's hot, of course, that's another factor. I'm not sure of the elevation, probably not too high in Cardiff. I don't know. Nick, is that a high altitude place or is that just like a regular altitude kind of place? That's just regular. Okay. Um, so basically, um, what happens is we put all these things, you know, into a big bucket, uh, performance, temperature, altitude, weight, and then we uh, come up with a go, no-go speed we call V1. And basically, it's a speed at which we can lose an engine and continue the takeoff and reach a certain height by the end of the runway, or it's the point at which we can initiate an abort and stop in the remaining runway. And that's called a balance field uh, calculation. And so what you may be seeing is this airplane rolling down the runway uh, past V1, but not quite at the rotation speed. So uh, typically for us, V1 and V rotate are separated by what, about five knots, Dana, something like that? I guess it depends on the situation. but Yeah, I mean, in between five to eight or nine knots. Yeah. And so there's a, you know, a, a little bit of time that elapses between V1 and V rotate, especially if you're on the heavier side. Uh, but that whole time, you know, you're past the decision speed, that V1 speed, uh, but you're, you've not reached the rotation speed yet, but you're technically committed to taking off. 
at that point. So even though, um, you know, they're still on the runway and it appears to you they're going awfully far down the runway before they start that rotation, basically they are committed to that takeoff at that point. So if they tried to stop the airplane after that point, then they most assuredly would probably exit the runway. Well, so. and it's also the visual illusion because if you have, have a 7,800-foot runway mm -hmm. and uh, you're rolling down that runway, it's going to look a lot different when you rotate off a 7,800-foot runway than if you're off a ten or 12,000-foot runway, yeah. uh, relatively speaking. I mean, you, you did mention the Flaps 5. I don't imagine that on a 7,800-foot runway that there'd be anything but uh, 11. You know, yeah, 11 or maybe even more like 18. Maybe 18. Depending on their yeah. weight. I mean, and, and most, uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but the passengers, most charters that I know of are going to be all coach seats. So it's going to be a lot heavier weight than, mm -hmm. than what you and I used to. Good point. Um, you're probably going to you know, pack in 170, maybe 160, depending on how much how many seats they try to pack in, what type of configuration they have inside there. So all of those things factor in, but I think the, the biggest one is the visual illusion because it's a much shorter runway. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Well, thank you. I hope that answered your question, Nick. And again, thank you for being a member of our Coffee Fund Club. All right. Um, getting close to the two-hour point, but not quite. So we're going to continue with Rick. And he says, greetings, APG crew. I've been listening to your podcast for over a year now, and I find it full of great information and entertaining. I've always meant to write in, and I finally have gotten around to it. My background, I'm a CFI and a ramp worker and a regional guy. And now I've been flying for a legacy carrier. Oh, okay. So I see this progression. CFI, ramp worker, regional guy, and now flying for a legacy carrier for the past seven and a half years out of Dulles International. And he said that we will call Ajax. Uh, I'm on the 75767 as a first officer doing mostly international operations with the occasional domestic trip here and there. I have a few questions for you. Uh, first for Captain Nick, I fly into Heathrow quite a bit and I find the constant descent approaches both fun and sometimes a little challenging especially if they decide to turn you in sooner and the miles to run changes a lot from the previous miles to run. On my fleet here at Ajax, we're told how we are doing on the CDAs into Heathrow. For example, 160 till 4 DME, not leveling off, etc., etc. Did your carrier always keep you informed of how you, were, uh, you all were doing on it? We are shown where we stand versus the other carriers on our monthly fleet newsletter. Back in March, your carrier beat us out of first place by a mere 0.3%. That other carrier based there was in a dismal fifth place. Laugh out loud. On a side note, I love getting in there at night and told to follow the greens. It makes taxiing so easy. I call it almost captain-proof. I just wish the U.S. would get that system. One last thing, Captain Nick. Happy retirement. Oh, isn't that nice? That's yes. very kind. So and, uh, yeah, I was just going to say CDAs, uh, no, they, they're generally, the ranges are given are fairly accurate. They don't often change them. And uh, yeah, that's what speed brakes are for. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, we always love the greens, particularly after a long flight. You're landing at night, and uh, and if you're not particularly familiar with Heathrow, it makes finding a parking spot very easy. 
Excellent. Dr. Steph, mm. not sure if you've talked about this before or that you're able to do them at your practice, but have you ever thought about doing FAA medicals? Along with the pilot shortage, it seems there are not too many AMEs anymore. Mm, interesting, an AME shortage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I actually have talked about it before, Rick, but it's been a while, so we can revisit it because I'm sure lots of new listeners have not heard about this either. But um, right now at my current practice, it's not really feasible. I am super busy doing the stuff that I do. Um, my office is not set up or capable to do it. I would have to invest in a decent amount of um, extra equipment to do it or convince my company to um, provision our office that way, which they might. But um, bottom line is it just comes down to I am I am super busy with my current practice and I've got people lined up and waiting to see me for several weeks out. So um, it probably wouldn't be the right time to add in additional stuff. However, um, I would be interested in doing it. And we just heard from, oh my gosh, I just blanked on his name. I should have written it down. Let me look at my notes here. Um, Mark, Swansea Mark. Yeah. About, um, you know, he did something similar where um picked up a job working for the oh, CAA yeah. doing their cardiac clearances and whatnot. And um yeah, I think it would be be interesting to do that further down the line in my career, perhaps when I'm not um, wanting to work quite as many hours in my current capacity or role um, as a little bit of a, a side gig, maybe something that's a little more relaxed, a little more, um, I'd say that my job now is very enjoyable, but um, something that ties everything kind of all together a little bit more. So, yeah. Excellent. Captains Jeff and Dana, listening to you guys talk about the Mad Dog retiring soon and displacements, I know it's tough to decide where to go next equipment-wise. I have a good friend who has been at Acme for a long time in the right seat of the Mad Dog, and last year he finally moved to the Airbus there in ATL. I can see Captain Nick smiling now, another person finally seeing the light. Personally, I think he went to the dark side. Guys, just my two cents. That was, by the way, Rick saying that the dark side of course i kind of agree with guys just my two cents he's dead to me (laughs) i never had aspirations of flying internationally with a major airline hanging out in the u.s was fine for me well i changed fleets over five and a half years ago to the 7576 and decided to give it a try i absolutely love it i've been able to hold narrow body captains since last summer and have put the upgrade off i was not ready to leave the international scene and go back to full-time domestic I will finally upgrade this fall sometime, as long as I can still hold my base. But I will go kicking and screaming. Give the international a try. You will see great places, enjoy the culture and cuisine of those places, and meet awesome people from all over the world. Yeah, that's what I hear. Um, I think I always tell the new pilots that I fly with, especially if they're young, that you definitely need to do the international thing just to give it a try. Uh, to say that you've done it because I hear from a lot of people that go over to the international side and they never look back. They stay over in the international um, system their entire careers from that point. So um, yeah, nothing wrong with it. For, it's just not for me. Uh, I think it's a personally, I think it's a young man's game. Uh, the people that I know that are my seniority and people in my class uh, at Acme a little over 30 years ago, I see them walking around sometimes in the airport and go, and, and I think to myself, wow, they look really, really old. <laughs> I think this is really kind of taking a toll on them. Uh, not all of them, but uh, a lot of them do. And I think that just going through all those t- multiple time zones over and over and over again cannot be good for you. And I think Nick would probably 
attest to that as well, saying it's just not an easy thing to recover from doing that kind of flying if you're doing it like all month long. Yeah, I'm I'm already 35 years old. Wow. See? What kind of an effect it had on him? I mean, Nick and I are basically the same age. So just make that comparison. <laughs> yep, exactly right. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that medicine's necessarily been easy on me either. So there's that. Of course, then of course it's the drinking too, you know. Well, I wasn't even gonna go there, but you know. Uh we're having fun at Nick's expense. But uh, I've we, got a very wrinkly liver. It's a very happy liver. <laughs> happy wrinkly. He's, like he's had a lot of IPAs from all over the world, so he's yeah. enjoying life. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, finally, look up a great video called The Final Approach, Living the Dream. It's an awesome video done by a retired airline captain reflecting about his career. I'd include the link, but I'm afraid I would mess it up. <laughs> well, there's cut and paste, man. Somebody needs to get together with Rick and show him how to do that. Anyway, sorry for the long list of questions. Keep up the great podcast, and maybe one day I can find time to attend one of those great meetups someplace. Hey, Oshkosh, a couple weeks from now. Come on, Rick. You're an airline pilot. Non-rev. All right. Follow the greens, he says. Rick, and he said, forget trying to pronounce my last name. Rick K is fine. <laughs> Kowal- Kowalczyk, I'd say. How did I do? Kowalczyk. That's exactly what I would have said. Oh. Kowalczyk. Yeah. Kowalczyk. Yeah. All right. I think. I would have said Kowalczyk. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, well, Nick. We'll take it. Good thing care you didn't it. do that. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You're very kind. <laughs> okay. And I can't fix that one in post. I'm sorry. All right. Now. I, I just got some feedback over here. Kowalczyk. Kowalczyk. He's the lead singer of a, some band? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I could see that too, Kowalczyk. A, 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 oh, a, kind a of a band CH. called Live from when? The 90s. The, from 90s. the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Too, oh, actually. Kowalczyk. But, yeah. Okay. Kowalczyk. I could see either way, though. Yeah. Okay. Maybe next time, Rick, some audio feedback. There you go. If you can figure out the link. <laughs> audio feedback, Rick can't do it. He can't even tell tell us how to do a link <laughs> or whatever. Just kidding. We're but just he having... can follow, But he can follow the green lights. Yes. Hey. And that's important. That's yes. very important. Yes. All right. Now it's time for the best time of the show or best part of the show, which is, you know, it's the old pilot's plane tales. Biggest problem putting G, the camera would actually pack up at 4G. It was the mirror. The old pilot's plane tales. Jeff Lee, the master photographer, part two. I continue my interview with Jeff Lee, who is the chief photographer for British Aerospace and who worked for Eurofighter, Airbus, and many other famous companies. His skill as an air-to-air photographer is renowned throughout the world of aviation. We pick up our chat as Jeff tells us about some of the difficulties he encountered when in the air. And then changing film, when 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 I ran out, I normally feel ran out, I never used the, my six magazine that was my emergency backup i generally got to about five and then i reload but we had to do that i had to be level because then it was roll film i had stick and lick but i couldn't lick because my oxygen mask so i had to take up tape so i could put it down all these little things people didn't think about and then i look at today with modern day digital slrs um you know Yes, I take spare batteries. Yes, I take spare cards with me. But essentially, it's significantly easier. G-wise, I can probably go to about 5G with, with a Nikon. But there's a point where it's just too heavy. And actually, 
it's easier, let's say we're pulling up into the vertical. So once we're actually pulling maybe 4, 4G to actually get into the vertical, but once we're just almost hitting the vertical, then I take the camera off my knee and then put it to my eye. But again, another issue um, which I didn't have with a Hasselblad, we had a 45 degree viewfinder. So because it's square format, wherever I put the camera, was always the right way up, if you see what see I mean, whichever way, because it was square. And I could see 100% of the viewfinder because it was a, like a tube and I could put it to my uh, eye uh, underneath the helmet. Unfortunately, modern day DSLRs, because the helmet's about an inch away, I can't actually get the camera to my eye. So what you do is when I'm setting it up, I actually just have to move it, have the image slightly smaller on the zoom just so I, I don't crop left and right, so I get the whole aeroplane in. Yeah, I didn't even think about that either. <laughs> Getting the eyepiece to your face with a yeah. helmet on, yeah, that must be a nightmare. Yeah. Have you had any photographic disasters? I've had one, and... Um, Only one in 40 years. I've had... I've had <laughs> okay, I've had three. <laughs> my, my most famous one, um, I was in Cyprus with the Red Arrows, and I was uh, using a Hasselblad with a digital back, and I was also using uh, a Nikon. And I was, we were doing three flights a day. From the time you land, they debrief, you get about 10 or 50 minutes, um, sometimes just to have lunch or to have a coffee, and then it's brief and then go flying again. And my thing is when we landed after each flight, I, I literally put the SD card, downloaded it, so I was always on a, on a, on a fresh card every time. And then on one sortie, I'd use the Hasselblad. Next one, I would use the, um, the Nikon. So middle flight, walk to the aeroplane, strapped in. And everything I teach people in camera clubs, I, the one thing I didn't do was check that I actually had an S, uh, a card, a CF card in my uh, back. But anyway, so uh, Dave Middleton was my pilot, mids. Uh, we were strapping in, canopy closed, start the engine. And at this stage, I thought, well, I'll just double check that everything's working on the camera. And so anyway, turned it on and suddenly I get this message with ERR on my Nikon. And I'm going, what the hell is this? What the hell is this? And anyway, then I opened the cover and I had no, effectively no uh, film in my camera. So I thought, what do I do? Essentially, I could get airborne, have 20 minutes flying with the Reds and land and probably nobody know because I was flying with them for two weeks. But I was honest. So I, I said to uh, Dave, my, my pilot, I said, Dave, you're not going to believe this. In the rush, swapping over cameras, I haven't actually loaded my camera with with any um, CF cards. So straight away on the radio, this is red 10 to to all the reds. Just to let you know, Jeff hasn't got any film in his, in his camera <laughs> and the beers are on him tonight. Oh, how lovely. So that's, that's probably my most embarrassing. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and perhaps most expensive. Yes. Yeah, because those boys can drink. Yes. So that's been perhaps your uh, worst moment, but what has been perhaps some of your most satisfying, interesting, exciting, or even funny airborne shoots? I've had quite a varied... For me, because I've been associated with the Hawker aircraft all my life, I suppose some of my flights that I remember are probably in a Harrier. I still, to this day, I still find it bizarre. You can be doing three, 400 knots at low level or whatever you're doing, and then suddenly come back to your airfield and you can vertically land i mean it's uh and or do a v-stall takeoff that, that v-stall takeoff i mean the kick when they put those throttles forward is, is 
probably Eurofighter is the nearest thing to it. Uh, maybe the Lightning was. Unfortunately, that was one aer- the only aeroplane in, 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 that was around when I was uh, flying. The only one I never got to go in the two-seater. It's, it's failed me. And every time I got the opportunity, I think a colleague of yours, Ian Black, would, would, would take that because he was obviously a pilot in the Air Force and I would end up with a Hawk. And that's what happened. And then eventually I got a Phantom ride. And again, everybody said, don't, don't use a, a Phantom because the view's awful. When I finally got to have a couple of rides, they were brilliant because the guy cross-controlled so I could get uh, overhead shots. He could do that with a tornado. The computer would say, sorry, can't do that and, and level you out all the time. Well, that's exactly right. You could never yaw the airplane. No. It would go, no, you shouldn't be doing yeah. that. Phantom, yeah, okay, there was a lot of stuff in front of me, but Sidewoods, as long as he could yaw the aeroplane, no problems whatsoever. Did you ever learn how to turn the inertial navigation system on? Well, I was given it lots of times to do on F3s, and I can honestly say to this day, I don't know how that aeroplane ever got airborne half the time, (laughs) because every time we did it, you know, I had a navigator having to do it for me, or occasionally they would let me do it, but it just seemed to be a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. We met in Australia during uh, the F3 Tornado sales tool. I believe it was Exercise Golden Eagle. Now, what was your position in the company by then? At that stage, I was, um, I'd was i been promoted from junior photographer to photographer. Not that it actually changed anything, <laughs> but I, I was no longer the junior. I was actually just one of the members of the staff. So I was given the opportunity to go on this three-month detachment uh, on, on Golden Eagle, which was four Tornado F3s around the world. For me, I was actually only doing a month and a half on Golden Eagle because at the same time, British Aerospace were taking out a Hawk 100 and a 200 to try and sell it to uh, the Australian Air Force as well as the various Middle East and also Asian uh, Air Forces around. So I went on Golden Eagle for a month and a half. Uh, So Singapore, Thailand. Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. And then Australia. Australia. So I, I then was in Australia for two weeks um, for the air show, the Bicentenary. And then, then I came back on a, a 146 aeroplane, which was our support aeroplane, back through those all those same countries again, but with a Hawk 100 and a Hawk 200. Uh, a lot of it was photographing dignitaries that were flying the aeroplane. It was also f- when we were on, um, on the exercises in Thailand, Singapore and Malaysia, the EADS exercise. We'd photograph the foreign air forces. So we built up a story of the whole tour. So it was most enjoyable. Did you get involved in any other major uh, events that you can recall? Yeah, I've been sort of quite lucky my whole working life. I've been on a couple of Red Arrows overseas trips, again, to the Middle East. Uh, and again, I'm very lucky to get to fly. My first ever trip in 1980 was a, a Middle Eastern trip. And again, it was essentially the Red Arrows were, were our ambassadors there's a lot of marketing behind the scenes, but there are ambassadors when we go overseas. I've been on two American Hawk tours. I've also been to Finland numerous times with Hawk, which eventually ended up in sales. I've also, after the Golden Eagle, I went two years later. I was invited back with the Mud Movers and the Air Defenders this time. So again, I went out there and I'm very lucky to get some air-to-air sorties whilst out on both of these trips. So, uh, in fact, I got my first F3 trip uh, when I was on, uh, out in Golden Eagle. And we did the, the, there's a famous photograph of an F3 over the bridge over River Kwai. Oh, wow. Yes. That must have been superb. Yeah. Who was your pilot? Shiny Simmons. Oh, Shiny. Huh? Shiny, yes. <laughs> shiny Excellent. was, um, and I look at these pictures, one of my colleagues took some pictures of me then. 
I mean, it's, I couldn't recognize myself I now. <laughs> I know, it's great, isn't it? By that time, you were the chief photographer of VA Systems, is that right? When Kingston closed in 93, I was uh, chief photographer and deputy head of department. Now, when you set up your own company, a very special door that I um, am very jealous of, because I never got to fly a Eurofighter, opened up for you. Perhaps you can explain what happened. Yes, out the blue, I got a phone call from Munich, which was Eurofighters, and to this day still is their their head office, from a guy called Ian Bustin, who was their PR manager. took me by surprise, really, but he said they were looking for a professional photographer that had been in the aircraft industry all their life, but somebody they could trust, work with and establish friendships or working relationships with other uh, parts of the manufacturing of uh, the aeroplane because it's um, at that time and still is the main four um, uh, companies that manufacture Eurofighter are based in, in the UK. They're in Germany, Spain and Italy. So they needed somebody that could get, get on with the Italians, Spanish, the Germans uh, go to their factory that obviously had security approval, which I have, and could work with them and still produce the images that the company wanted. And also, eventually, they were hoping that I could then get to meet the test pilots on a regular basis and then persuade them, you know, with my background, that I was the person to get airborne to start doing the Eurofighter images. After the uh, initial interview in Munich, they invited me back to go to Manching, which is their test facility, and uh, photograph a test pilot working up his routine for the Farnborough Air Show. And to this day, you know, 19 years on, um, you know, I still do photography for Eurofighter. Brilliant. Uh, how many times did you get to fly in the aircraft? Um, I've, I've got over 20 hours back seat in Eurofighter. It's only been with the, the UK, the Royal Air Force, that I've flown in their Eurofighters. My claim to fame, I was the first uh, civilian photographer to fly in uh, RF uh, Eurofighter Typhoon. Excellent. Great job. Mm. There have been some classic aviation photographers. Arthur Gibson? He's somebody I respected greatly, and um, he, to a degree, was my mentor. And he really was the person who I wanted to become. What used to happen is that Arthur used to come and do an awful lot of photography, primarily with the Red Arrows. But he started to come into BA Systems. We, we, our marketing department, PR department, hired him to to produce films for us. And I would see some of his image images and what it would do, it inspired me because I just felt if he can do it and become, not that I want fame, that's, you know, I just enjoy doing what I do for a living and hopefully more importantly, the pilots or whoever, that's, that's where I get my buzz. And I started work at trying to get equally good images. And there was another chap at the same time, actually, a lot younger. And unfortunately, he passed away last year, Richard Cook. And Richard Cook pioneered, pioneered the head-on pictures by using a, um, a pod underneath an aeroplane, a hawk, and the aeroplanes would fly. In fact, a hunter, I tell you, it was a hunter. And the aeroplanes would come basically uh, stern of the aeroplane and they would manoeuvre or whatever. But he was famed. He was the first person that really put head-on photography into the magazines and around. And they started to do a lot, but they were both freelance uh, photographers. And working for the company where essentially I could tap into our own assets, 
I just thought, you know, this is this was my this was my goal. And from my first flight in 1980, I suppose it probably took between seven and 10 years where I started to chip away and get a name for myself in the outside world. Um, and again, through Valley, Chivna and Broadie, whenever there were new squadrons joining, new paint schemes, new whatever, because I started to have friends there, they, I would be their first port of call. Uh, and I would turn up, we'd do the pictures and w- whatever, produce prints for everybody. But so it, it, it was never an overnight thing. You have to work at these things. Um, and for me, it probably was 10 years before I had a, had a small name on the outside world of, you know, producing images for, um, for BA systems. Uh, looking back, is there any one image that you can really think of as your best or are they just too many? There's probably too many, but there's, there's one shot that stands out and it's not necessarily, if I showed it to you now, and I, I, I will email it to you, but it's the manner at which it was taken. It was, uh, I can't remember the year, but it was early 80s. And I'm, I was very lucky uh, in 80 to meet Brian Hoskins, who was the leader of the Red Arrows. And he later became uh, uh, Wing Commander Ops at uh, RAF Broadie. And I explained to him one day that what I really wanted uh, was three hawks in an inside turn, but stepped up. And he said to me, Jeff, never work. It's impossible. So I said to him, if I can prove it works with one aeroplane... I can tell you it will work with three and then four. And he, he said, I can categorically, said Jeff, it will not work. And in fact, another, through another friend of ours, uh, Nigel Demery, he was the first person that we tried this with and it worked. So I, I knew in my mind it would work. He, as a pilot, said, Jeff, it will not work. And by that stage, he had thousands of hours of flying under his belt. Well, anyway, he very kindly sourced... Um, a hawk from uh, Chivna, there was one from Broadie, there was from one from Valley, and there was a Red Arrow, plus my aeroplane. And we all met over Mid-Wales, and I got, first the, I got the first one in place, then the second, then third, then the fourth, and then we then did a 30-degree uh, starboard turn, but gently rolling in, and once everybody had rolled in and there was separation, we then I stepped each one up, moved them slightly fur, further forward, backwards or whatever to get the ideal position. And after about four or five 360s, we finally got the shot. And the nicest comment to me, uh, you know, and again, it's not about me, is when a pilot says, I told you I, I didn't think it was going to work, but you've proved me wrong. And that really, for me, was a big tick in the box. Particularly from someone with that level of experience, exactly. ex-leader of the Reds. Yeah. That's very impressive. And just um, other shots that um, are special for different ways are uh, some of my missile firing shots, because uh, that is just, even for civilian, is to be beside an aeroplane when a rocket or a missile goes off. Um, that... That is out of this world. And they have been probably, uh, when I look at them and think, how the hell did I do that? You know, it's it's those sort of things. And again, with Eurofighter, even though industry had fired ASRAM uh, missiles, I was invited to the first RAF serviceman firing a missile on the range at Aberporth in, uh, in Wales. I was flying from Leeming and I had flight lieutenant at the time, Sally Cronin, uh, flying me. But Sally was an F3 uh, pilot. Excellent. And she, I was assigned for uh, the week 
we knew it wouldn't take a week, but we, we were given an aeroplane and uh, I was given Sally for a week. So we, we went a couple of times to Valley and the weather wasn't suitable and all sorts. There was, a, there was a boat in the range. And eventually, the profile we were doing, we were originally going to be um, a line abreast for the firing. It was a fairly simple setup, hence why we were offered this one. And 350 knots... And we were obviously going to the uh, Eurofighter was going to be guided onto the uh, uh, Mirage uh, target, and then he was going to um, fire his ASRAM once the flares were lit, and we would be uh, on his um, on his left hand side, port side, to get the shots. And as we were walking to the aeroplane, strapped in, and we got over the uh, radio, the uh, Eurofighter pilot said the range have um, decided that they want us to now do it at 450 knots. So we took off from Leeming and obviously enough time to get from Leeming to Valley and then waited for the Eurofires to get airborne and then they gave us a 50 minute delay. So we basically, we went up to about 25,000 feet to uh, conserve fuel. But during our transit over to Valley, we had to work out um, because on a Eurofighter, when they go from 350 knots to 450 knots, it's just a little tweak of the throttle and they're there pretty instantaneous. Our little hawk, it takes a couple of seconds for the engine to spool up and actually get to 450. So what Sally had actually, what we were working out was how we were going to get that that 100 knots quickly when, when the range called 350 to 450, how we could get this. Find out how this shoot went and listen to some more of Jeff's fantastic stories in the next plane town. If you want to see what Jeff is up to and take a look at some of his images, visit his website at plainfocus.com. Ah, good stuff. Can't wait for the next installment of your interview with uh, Jeff Lee. Yeah, a lovely bloke and uh, some interesting stories. Certainly, uh, he's got a remarkable uh, amount of fast jet time for a damn photographer. <laughs> Yeah. It just sounds like the best job ever. I mean, it does, just, doesn't it? So absolutely envious. fascinating. And he just loves it. He's got about 400 hours in the back of a Hawk, which, uh, you know, it's a lot of time airborne, let alone all the other types he's flown in. Excellent. All right. Um, so stay tuned to the APG to uh, hear the rest of the story from Jeff Lee. Yeah, you know, he mentioned uh, somebody, everybody here uh, on the APG knows, part of our APG community, Nigel. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I know that guy. Good friends. You do know that guy. (laughs) Yeah, quite right. All right. Uh, Let's see. Where did we leave off? I think uh, the next one would be Jonathan. Yes. Okay. I was listening to episode 380 as Captain Dana described his most recent experience kicking a passenger off the plane. Then to hear Captain Jeff say that that was 200% more. Than he has kicked off in his entire career. There was some discussion about flying in the morning versus the afternoon, and I'm sure that that does play a role. But I really think there's something else going on. I'm not an airline employee, just a frequent flyer in Acme's frequent flyer program, logging roughly 76,000 miles last year. It'll be substantially less this year in terms of flights and miles, but significantly more in terms of uncomfortable and unpleasant interactions with my fellow passengers. I keep thinking there has to be or there have to be a couple of things at play. The current political climate, and let's not get into it, except to say that things are extremely polarized. Yes. And how full airliners are running. 
None of this is to blame anyone but the passengers who have behaved badly. I just want to plant the idea that perhaps there are actually more misbehaving passengers than there used to be. Okay, I wanted to get out this feedback without telling my craziest passenger story of the past two months, but I can't stop myself. I was flying home to Minneapolis from a business trip to Chicago, and I gave up my seat in first class for a seat in economy on an earlier Acme Connection flight. I was minding my own business, occasionally talking to a nervous traveler next to me, but mostly keeping my noise-canceling headphones on. An older gentleman came up and started talking to the guy next to me. Then he looked down at me and said something. I didn't hear what he said, so I took my headphones off my ear, or my headphone off my ear, and looked up at him and said, Sorry? Mind you, I've never met this person, never talked to this person, never even seen this person, but I'm polite and I try to keep flying civilized. The individual put both his hands around my neck and briefly squeezed as if to pretend to choke me. He stopped and laughed, as did the guy sitting next to me, as if to say it was some big joke. I was uncomfortable, but not harmed. I glared at him and he retreated to a seat behind me. We were probably 25 minutes from landing in Minneapolis, so after a brief internal struggle, I decided to get home and see my kids rather than make a larger issue of this man's extremely inappropriate behavior. I imagine, however, that I could have at the very least turned it up, or turned it into the sort of situation where law enforcement is asked to meet the plane. And if it had been a long flight, turned it into a situation where you guys up front would have to decide whether to set it down en route uh, and offload the offending passenger. I would love to know if any of your airline pilots have ever dealt with anything like this. Thanks for the great show, and I hope everyone has a great time at AirVenture down the highway in Oshkosh. Talons Douglas from Jonathan in Minneapolis. Uh, I'll start by saying no, I've not ever experienced this kind of situation or even heard of anything like this. I think to to even if it was a joke, supposedly, to actually physically touch somebody like that and squeeze their neck, that's way beyond proper behavior. Yeah, that's, I'm, I mean, that's borderline assault at that mm-hmm. point. Even if it was meant to be joking by the person doing it, you don't know that. You don't know who they are. They're touching a sensitive area in a threatening manner. Uh, I don't think you can play around with that. I, I don't think uh, Jonathan's response was necessarily in uh the wrong thing to do like he said you know it was okay everything turned out all right it wasn't it would have been a potentially a lot more hassle and and time involvement and and whatnot if he had made a big deal of it um but you just wonder what's going on in someone's head when they do something like that are they doing that to other people is it going to escalate into something a lot worse at some point um where do you stop it and where do you draw the line i don't know yeah and i think we all agree that uh, things are getting more heated, especially politically speaking. And people used to be polite and remain civilized and understand that we all have different ideas about things, but keep it on a, on a civil level. And it seems that as time goes on, it's getting more and more um, acceptable to start acting in a, a non or uncivilized manner, which is really troubling. I think that has a lot to do with political correctness as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, you, you, people are just not very tolerant of other people's views and opinions and thoughts. So um, this this situation right here, uh, <clears throat> you know, to answer, 
answer Jonathan's uh, uh, question, have I ever, you know, have I ever had to divert the airplane or dealt, deal with something similar or anything close to this? The answer is no. Just like you, Jeff, I've never have. Um, but I, I think that, you know, it, after September 11th, it was amazing how the brotherly love of, of fellow human being and, and fellow American was really, was very strong. And as we've moved away from that date, it seems as though we've become so polarized and so so willing to um, act inappropriately. And I agree with you, Jonathan. It, it has gotten worse. And I, I, I hate that I had to remove people off the airplane. I hate it. I, I am not the guy that wants to do that. But when you've got an entire first class pass, you know, cabin full of passengers saying, "Hey, we want this guy out of here. He's he's obnoxious," and they get another one. I mean, I never did say what the person said when I was walking down the aisle, but it's quite offensive directly directed towards the captain on the airplane, me. Um, and then I, you know, kind of ignored it. And then when I was walking back forward, heard it again. Was it worse than the kind of stuff that I say to you? It's, you know what, <clears throat> what I, what you say to me is not offensive <laughs> at all. Cause I know you love me. What he said was, uh, um, my wife could contradict quite to the opposite of what he said. Anyways, uh, I'm not <laughs> okay. going to say anything beyond that, okay. but I, I will say that it was quite offensive. Uh, and to my flight attendant was walking back there before she even said anything to him. And he said to her to go F off mm. before she even got anywhere near. Him. Um, so th- it, it was quickly ele- escalating. And then the guy gets off the airplane, has the audacity to say, Please leave me on the airplane. I looked at him and said, no, mm-hmm. yep. sorry. You had at that chance. point, you had your chance. And it's very much so what Jonathan's talking about. People are just not behaving properly. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to be said that, you know, you fly a lot of morning morning yep. type of flying. And I'm getting all the afternoon, especially during the summertime now. People are a little more lax and having a little more vacation time and enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. So they're getting on the aircraft pre- predisposed to some uh, liquid attitude adjustment or some other type of chemical attitude adjustment that I don't think is uh, appropriate. Mm-hmm. I, I do also think that uh, part of the problem uh, in today's world is, um, has been the contribution, negative contribution via social media. I know there are a lot of great things. I have a lot of good friends that I communicate with uh, social media, but on the other hand, I stay away from the big pond of, what is this behind me? You're uh, frequently buffering. Are well, you having streaming interruptions? I, I guess so. Is your, okay. <laughs> I go to see a doctor. <laughs> I, I yeah, guess I do sounds, need to. I need to check into that. Your urologist, <laughs> I would recommend. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that um, the in the big pond, the big section of some of these social media networks that I stay away from purposely. Uh, there is a lot of negative. There's a, people are saying things to people that you would never say to them in person, and I think that it's giving. You people, think that, but I think it. I think it makes people bolder in real life too. They're like, well, I got away it, with saying this to someone, you know, on you know Twitter or Facebook the other day, so I'm just gonna. I think that's really sad, isn't you know? it? Hmm. Yeah, because and, you know it, it gives it gives a whole new meaning to bullying. Number one, because you can just go ahead and bully. And in in inflame people very easily. So thus, you know, it's it. I think it's 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 transcending society in a lot of ways that we're not really, uh, really realizing at this point. Yeah. Valid point, Jeff. I don't know. I still think there's something to the time of day thing. To be perfectly honest, and mm-hmm. these are my own anecdotal experiences. Um, 
I took a very early flight this morning where everyone was quite civilized and some people were even like already doing work like on their laptops and it's super early in the morning and a um, little bit of a contrast to the you know late afternoon flight I took two days prior, different crowd of people, different and then uh, the weekday crowd and the weekend crowd, that's different too. That's I know different, yeah. Difference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I find that the jokes I say on, on Monday mornings or Friday afternoons, people are just not as receptive because they just stand, sit there stone-faced, whereas people that are um, you know, traveling during the weekends or later in the day tend to be a lot more um, uh, open to having, you know, having a little sense of humor. Uh, so it's a better crowd for Dana on the late afternoons and Absolutely. evenings and the weekends. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I prefer, I, I will put it on record saying, I prefer the early, early morning uh, you know, business minded. Yeah. I just like sitting in the left seat. So I'm going to get, take whatever yeah. they <laughs> give me. Whatever I oh, do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is, as long as I'm still sitting in the left seat and yeah. enjoying this, uh, enjoying this life. That's fine. By Absolutely. Me. That's awesome. All right. Great comments. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan, for sharing your very uncomfortable experience. And uh, you may have a point. Maybe things are just getting worse. And, you know, what is it we have to do to turn this thing around? I don't know. Yeah. And kudos to you for how you handled it, because I think the rest of us might not have taken it in such stride. Yeah. All right. Ray. Ray Davis from Down Under says, hi, folks. Hope everyone is well. Here's a news item that may be of interest. Uh, H.A.R.S. is also the home of an airworthy C-121C Super Constellation, Victor Hotel Echo Alpha Golf. So I think that... HARS, H-A-R-S, must be something to do with this um, link that he sent us. And the headline from illawaramercury.com.au. Did I do that right? Illawara? Uh, John Travolta. Okay, thanks. Uh, John Travolta to fly to Illawara on Boeing 707. He donated to the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society. John Travolta will fly to Albion Park in November on board the Boeing 707 aircraft he has donated to the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society. In 2017, it was revealed John Travolta had donated the aircraft to the Albion Albion Park Museum. However, in, uh, in Utah, it's pronounced Albion. Albion? That's Utah. And okay. that's the way it's pronounced in Australia. Albion? Albion. Okay. Thank you. Um, However, transporting the plane to the Illawarra was delayed because of costs involved in maintaining the aircraft and flying it to the region as a transport category airline. HARS President Bob De La Junti said, with cooperation from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, a team of engineers from HARS had undergone a process of inspection with an alternative means of compliance. Our expectation and target is going to be November, Mr. De La Hunty said. Travolta, a qualified pilot and Qantas ambassador, won't be flying the plane, but he will be part of the crew. John Travolta, oh, I'm sorry, this is a caption for the picture. Uh, he has taken time out of his movie commitments for the whole of November to have some flexibility with dates. Uh, Mr. De La Hunty said Harz had decided to fly the plane here under a private category, which means it will not cost as much. We were originally going to try and keep the uh, plane in transport category, which is like an airliner. The cost under a private category will be considerably less. We don't need to do a lot of things that are going to cost millions of dollars. 
Uh, it's still an expensive operation. We've been gratified by people visiting HARS who have given us $50 here, $100 there. Some people have given us $1,000. We don't need the millions we did to begin with, but we certainly need a few hundred thousand. Uh, Mr. De La Hunty said that if HARS chooses to continue to fly the prized aircraft, they can do the more expensive work once it's based at Albion Park. Anyway, uh, didn't how long ago was it that uh, Travolta bought this airplane? I know it's been a while, probably. At it's least. been it's been since I worked on the ramp in Boston, so that's in the eighties, uh, well, early nineties. Okay. I got to I got to actually see the aircraft up close and personal. And didn't he have this thing parked at his like place in Florida? That yes. uh, yeah. So I, I'm wondering if it just got to the point where it got to be way out of the out of hand expensive for even. Uh, John or, Travolta. Yeah, I'm sure, just to maintenance-wise and yeah. to fly. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, anything else to say about this? No? No. We'll see. Uh, I guess we'll follow the uh, progress and see how it does. Yeah. Okay. And uh, finally, Private Pilot Rich writes, Captain Jeff and crew, the attached article talks about an issue on the new A330neo that apparently is caused by a lack of sufficient bleed air into the cabin. My question is, how many bleed air issues have you had in your career? And as Captain Nick... Um, pardon? Flu. Flu, thank you. Yeah. Glee. <laughs> I'm not sure. What, what does that mean? Uh, thank you. Flu, the A330. Uh, any known issues on that plane? See you all in Oshkosh. Yeah, we're looking forward to it, Private Pilot Rich. So he gave us a link to this uh, article via, let's see, what was this? From paddleyourowncanoe.com. Interesting. <laughs> a <website>. reputable uh, journal. <laughs> right up there with Flight Global. Yes, yes. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure they know how to spell canoe. Yeah, no. <laughs> Maybe that's a foreign spelling. <laughs> European aircraft manufacturer Airbus and TAP Air Portugal are investigating reports that the new A300neo aircraft, I guess that would be 330, wouldn't it, uh, is causing cabin crew, pilots, and passengers to feel nauseous and sick and even pass out in some rare cases. According to the Portuguese newspaper Publico, a number of complaints have been made to the National Civil Aviation Authority and that uh, both the European Air Safety Agency and even Airbus are carrying out investigations to work out what's going on. Apparently, the current theory points to a problem with the amount of air being drawn into the cabin from the engines in a process that is known as bleed air. It's possible that not enough high-quality air is being pumped into the cabin, causing hypoxia-like symptoms, especially on ultra-long-haul flights such as those currently being operated by TAP Air Portugal. And uh, in one case, Publico says that pilots had to put on oxygen masks. Sorry, something just happened in the background here and took my window away. Oh, do you want me to continue? Yeah, why don't, why don't you? Uh, uh oh, I don't know. Pilots. If I know where you're... Um, oh, here in I got it. Says, in one in one case, Publico says that pilots put on oxygen masks, while in other cases, the newspaper says. Cabin crew have passed out because of the problems. President of the National Union of Civil Aviation Flight Personnel, or SNPVAC, just rolls right off the tongue there, <laughs> claims that the reports concerning the A330neo are different from normal passenger sickness or turbulence that is an everyday event. 
Um, TIP Air Portugal has confirmed that it has received complaints from the crew or from crew stating in a statement, the fact that in some new units of the A330neo, some odors from air conditioning equipment may have been detected. It is considered normal in new aircraft and disappears shortly after the first use. The airline says it would never put their clients and employees at risk for their health. In fact, they even called an Airbus who carried out an investigation and put the A330neos through a series of tests. All analyses made by Airbus with the support of independent uh, laboratories indicate that the air quality parameters are within the normal range in the industry, the airline said. Uh, in the various tests carried out, uh, both on the ground and in flight, as to possible sources of discomfort, such as flow and distribution of air or temperature control, the results were full compliance. The experience and comfort of air circulation in the A330neo is equal to that of previous A330 generations. In the last few weeks, TAP Air Portugal took delivery of its 10th A330neo, or A300, no, A330neo? Yeah, that's a typo. Yeah, 330. I think that yeah. was the second time they've had yeah. the typo. After becoming the launch customer of the aircraft type in October 2018, the airline has a total of 21 A330neos on order and plans to use them mainly on flights between Portugal and the Americas, particularly ultra-long haul flights to Brazil. Airbus has won a number of high-profile customers for the aircraft, including Delta Airlines, Virgin Atlantic, and Emirates. The aircraft manufacturer says the A330neo offers passengers, quote, the best-in-class comfort. End quote. So far, it doesn't look like any fix has been identified and that TAP thinks this is just a short-term issue as any heating problems are worked out on the new aircraft. It'll be interesting to see whether this problem affects crew and passengers on A330neos operated by other carriers. That could prove to be a much bigger headache for Airbus. Indeed. Probably Indeed. Not. So paddle your own canoe needs to do better with the proofreading on there. <laughs> just a little bit. They certainly do. <laughs> um any any thoughts about this nick uh well not really because it sounds yeah. like airbus have answered them um no is the answer to the question about um the, are there frequent bleed issues uh, on yeah. the 330s that i were flying um no it's a pretty standard system that is uh, common across all airbus aircraft uh, you bleed air, air from the engines. You have high and low pressure, and uh, it's fed to the cabin, and uh, it's recirculated to a percentage. Uh, and I very much doubt that has changed on the Neo. Mm -hmm. uh, the only real difference between the Neo and the ex existing uh, older 330s are the engine type. Um, but uh, it sounds like Airbus have gone uh, to some length to take a look at the air to make sure uh, it's meeting the requirements and standards uh, of the industry and comparing it with uh, older aircraft and uh, other 330neos. Um, and uh, they, they don't see a problem. So um, I think you would, we'd need more data, more information, and some actual facts uh, because a lot of this, uh, in inverted commas, the fix, I, don't, I would say, is there, in inverted commas, a problem? Because uh, it appears not at the moment. Bless you, brother. Thank you. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to mute myself before I sneezed in the middle of your of your comments. Um, the only bleed air issues I've ever... Well, I don't think we have any bleed air issues that I recall, except for the... I don't know, because a lot of times I'll end up passing out. So, um, 
Yeah, not really sure uh, you exactly might remember them if you pass. Not really out. sure what's causing that. Flatulence. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that might be part of it. Mm-hmm. No, I, Dan, have you had any issues with bleed air issues on, on the Mad Dog? I, I really haven't. Um, not this, not not like, uh, not like this at all. No. Um, yeah, you know, it, I've had where I've had in and out pack, and I've actually had another the other pack that was. Uh, supposedly operational go out on me. So I had two in-off packs uh, that's going back several years now. But uh, the only thing I can think of with this is, you know, is are they use, using the higher humidity type of air on this airplane, like what they did with the, the Trip 7, where it's not such a dry cabin? I, I don't know if that I might be. I don't think be. so, because it's, you know, they, they still have the t- the traditional um, metal um, fuselage. It's not a plastic yeah, so uh, uh, that's also yeah that was the only thing that i was thinking about is maybe they're trying to you know add the moisture back into the environment and yeah. that's obviously not the case i don't think so i think it's just a, a new airplane you know the new airplane smell mm, i love new airplanes love new well airplanes. there is a lot of chemicals within that that's what i love about it yeah. mm-hmm. but even uh, even these aircraft when they get delivered will have had test flights so it's not like it'll be their very first flight but uh yeah, yeah. I mean, when we started flying the 340s, uh, they uh, decided that um, they probably had the uh, pressurization set at too high an altitude because when we get up, got up to the low 40s, um, occasionally we would have um, little old ladies and uh, people who were susceptible for uh, you know, operating in a slightly lower uh, pressure of oxygen uh, used to faint occasionally um, and um, it w- wasn't a major hassle at all it was only you know the, the majority the normal sort of passengers who didn't have a problem never, never really felt anything but uh, we did in fact uh, increase that um, pressure so that we reduced the cabin altitude uh, significantly and all those problems went away and um, I don't know, there may be just a little bit of tweaking to be done in the pressurization system, but uh, it's not really a factor of recirculation. It's really got nothing to do with that, so long as uh, anything recirculation can do is uh, build up levels of carbon dioxide, and I don't think that would be the case. It would be very quickly detected uh, since they've been testing the aircraft. They would know that. Um, so, no, I, I wouldn't have thought it's going to be a major problem from the tour. And I don't think they are going to have a headache. And if they do, they can always take some paracetamol. Or aspirin. They yeah. call me in the morning. Exactly. Um, take, two. Hmm? take two. Take two. Yep. Take, take two aspirin. aspirin call, call me, me in, in the morning. morning. <laughs> so, you know, we know that the NEO stands for new engine option. It's a new engine. And uh, perhaps they're have, experiencing some growing pains and mating the new engine with the with the uh, co- uh with the uh old airframe and uh that might be you know yeah te- it, it is possible but it's very early days and there don't yeah. seem to be a great number of cases of this yet no so we'll uh keep our eyes and ears open for that see if they uh kind of decide or figure out what's going on with that but i have a feeling that that'll fix itself over time mm-hmm. all right well, you know what? I'm suffering what? low bandwidth. <laughs> Apparently. should probably yeah. take two aspirin and call us in. <laughs> I'll, I should probably do that. Um, I think 
we've actually run through what Liz has put in our current show feedback folder. You know, we could go and seek out some more feedback for the show, but you know what? We're coming up on, this is two yeah. hours, 45 minutes here. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. I do too. I do too. So I think it's time now for us to point you to the awesome website that uh, Arash manages for us. Airline and it's Pilot back Guy. up again. It's back up again. Yes. Um, AirlinePilotGuy.com where you can find out more information about the show, the crew, the community. Uh, we have the APG store. By the way, I should mention that uh, if you weren't able to order, again, I've mentioned this at the beginning of the show, uh, but uh, if you hadn't had a chance to order one of your or one of our uh, shirts for Osh Blast 2019, you can still do it by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash store and clicking on the Osh Blast 2019 t-shirts there and they'll take you to Teespring and you can order those and will be delivered to your home. And uh, let's see, what else do we have there? A lot of other good things like the Plain Tales page, uh, the APG library, and much, much more uh, we also have apps for your iPhone and uh, Android devices. Go to the respective app stores for that. And we're also on social media. We are. Hey, are you coming to Oshkosh? Do you want to meet up with the APG crew or know where we're going to be? Yes. You can check out our social media website or sites. They're not our websites. We use Twitter and Facebook. You can also check out our website, but I don't think we'll have that much information about where we'll be nah. in real there so head on over to twitter at apg crew is where you can find us i'm sure we'll be posting information about what our plans are where we end up for each day as of right now i don't think we have any firm set plans as to what we're doing when exactly but we'll be there and um we're going to take advantage of all there is uh being offered and you can also check out facebook.com slash airline pilot guy for similar information yes you can and we're also on slack APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. And a special thank you to our producer, Liz Piper, up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada for all the work that she does behind the scenes. She does a bunch, and we couldn't do it without her. So thank you, Liz, for that. And for all of you who download the show, who uh, tell other people about it, give us reviews on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts and other places around the web. And without you, we wouldn't be able to do as well as we are. And with that, I think it's now time for us to wish you Clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Safe landings, everybody. Have a great night. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.